Hello, you're listening to the Art Grime Podcast, coming to you from a state of utter confusion on Manhattan's Upper East Side. I'm your host, Marshall Jones. I'm Kim Power. And I'm Tonatello. And tonight we're talking to the great John Wellington, and because he refused my white wine, we're drinking red wine. John's a true New Yorker. Tonight he discusses the guiding principles that inform his creative process and navigating the art world as a single parent. So, John, welcome. Welcome to Art Grind Podcast. Yay! Yay! Hi, Marshall. Hi, Kim. <laughs> so happy to have you here. With nice us. to be here. So, we were. You're, there's just so many stories involved in your artwork and your, your whole career, like all the things that you've done. We want to start from the beginning because you're a real New York artist. Yeah, in fact, Ben said you were the the epitome of a New Yorker. What I when I was talking to him, my my son Ben. Yeah, your son oh. Ben. He was like, "There's no one who who is more New York than my dad." Was what he said. <laughs> wow, that's funny. I would have said the same about him because <laughs> he was actually born here. Yeah, well, you you were basically though, right? N- no, I'm at uh, Santa Monica, California. Ah, okay. Okay, so... but when did you come to New York? 1965. But how how old I was in? I was uh, four and a half. Oh, so yeah, yeah. you're basically, and that yeah. was into Greenwich Village, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it was uh, California two years, uh, France two years. Okay. And then uh, and then the village. And oh, where in France? Uh, first in a little town in the south, Cagnes-sur-Mer, and then Paris. And I went to Nicole Martinelle uh, in uh, Rue Madame. Right near the Luxembourg Gardens, and the no shit. We, right we lived the in like, a, and it was back when uh, Amazing. they could live in. People could live in Paris for like five dollars or four dollars a day. Wow. <laughs> My dad had a camera enlarger because he was a avant-garde filmmaker and a poet. And the way they made money is they rented the camera enlarger in, uh, I think, in Los Angeles, and that's how they lived was off the renting of the camera enlarger, the photo wow. enlarger. Really? Yeah. That gave him the they money. They rented it out, or he? They rented it out. The photo enlarger, which is like a big thing that just enlarged photographs. So they oh just was like, they were just like, let's bring this to Paris, and we can live off of. Well, they got the money. They kept it in L.A. and they went to Paris. Incredible. And then eventually, the photo enlarger came to our bathroom in the village. So when I was growing up, <laughs> my my bat the bathroom. The bathroom had, was the dark room. Yeah, so I always had to knock, <laughs> and uh, my dad would. I'd be like. Dad, I gotta, I gotta go, and he'd be like, "One minute, one minute," and you know, he would, uh, you know, put the film into like the big black bag, and um, there would be the red bulb, and wow. the camera enlarger was there on the little table, and the bathtub had all the chemicals. Nobody knew the chemicals were probably super toxic. Right. Probably. Well, that's interesting because my bathroom growing up was also a dark room from my brother. Oh wow! So classic. It's like a weird, yeah, it's so classic to have that. Yeah. So your dad was sounds like a, a bit of a character then. Kinda. He he was he was uh, I'll talk about the positive things of him. He was uh, an avant garde filmmaker who worked with Paul Bartel, who uh, did Eating Raoul, and they did a movie called Secret Cinema. Oh wow! Uh, he worked on the Rocky and Bullwinkle animation. One of the things he was very good at was uh, just taking animation cells and photographing them, and then taking the next animation cell. So he worked on Roger Ranjet, Peanuts. Wow. Uh, just, you know, but that just entailed being in a room 
Just taking cell. shots of cells. Right. Like wow. old, old school animation. So I have like a, a lot of cells from Roger Ranjet. Do you really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. Um, I think I have one cell from Peanuts. Huh. Uh, he uh, was um, he was a really, uh, he had a great eye for art and for what was coming. Uh, his own work was always a little derivative. He, he t- had his Leica, so he took photographs, but his photographs were like Robert Frank. Uh, in the 50s, his paintings were like de Kooning. Okay. His poetry was like the beat poets. You know, he was ne- he sort of followed the styles. Um, he he became friends with a lot of jazz musicians like Ornette Coleman, hmm, who I grew really? up knowing. And well, that's in New York City. No, that was in L.A. That was when Ornette was working as a stock boy and playing at this club uh, with a plastic saxophone. <laughs> and my dad was, uh, I should say his name, Frederick Sherwood Wellington. Fred Wellington. So he, he was, me, a friend of his was playing keyboards, and, and uh, Ornette had just played a solo in this plastic sax. And, what do you um, mean, plastic? Like a toy? Like, yeah, what does that mean? He was playing with a plastic saxophone. Ornette <laughs> <laughs> and, and every Yeah, and every time the solos would come on, the bartender would use, use that time for the blender, for the blender to try and drown it out. Because <laughs> um, he was on the cusp of kind of free jazz. Yeah, like, and this was in the 50s. Fi- and this there, was in the 50s. Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, I could see that. So late 50s. Turn the blender on with that. And, uh, and the pianist was like, man, this cat's horrible. This cat's really horrible. <laughs> and my dad was like, yeah, man, he, yeah, this cat, he's so bad, man. He's the next thing after Bird. And, and what my dad was saying, I love this guy's music. The other guy's saying, I can't believe I have to be playing with this guy. Oh my and then God. afterwards, my, uh, Fred and Ornette, they, they went and talked with each other afterwards, and they stayed friends for a very, very long time. You're kidding. Yeah. Wow. So, but Ornette Coleman went to New York for a while, right? Yeah, he no, was, he lived. He, he had a loft down in the in the Lower East Side, and I, he was in France for a while. I think wow. that was one of the migrations. It was California to France to the village, and that's what you followed. Yeah, we did that, that was migration. More common, yeah. Right? Huh. So that was like a fifties, early sixties migration. Huh. Kind of following like cheap Bohemia or something. Was that, that was the it? Idea? Okay. It was cheap Bohemia. Wow. Yeah, because New York was like a di- whole different. Animal back yeah, then, right? I think everything was. Yeah, well, <laughs> everywhere. Yeah. We're definitely in the, in the new paradigm now, for sure. But yeah, but it was also like an age of um, not everything wasn't so PC back then. In fact, uh, transgression was really the name of the game. Oh, that's a whole nother subject. All right. Well, uh, I don't mean to leap, leap out of the. Yeah. Subject, well, but I mean, I, is it really another subject? I mean, it, it is in a New sense York because was like wild New York back then. Well, right? you know, I think it always depends on what circle you're in and what you know. Peace, political correctness is when the when people that think probably what maybe more of us would subscribe ourselves to, being wanting to be sensitive to people, goes too far. But on the other hand, in the fifties, you had McCarthyism, which you had the right wing. Correctness, oh, right. and so you had like all these people who were committing suicide because they were being turned in as a, being a communist sympathizer, because they dated a communist, or because they went to a meeting, and you had such a repressive. My mother talks about this: the, the repression of the fifties for creative people was so intense. Mm-hmm. So oh. maybe it wasn't called; it, it was still political correctness, but just the right wing. Yeah. No, and that's so, a great point. Because sixty-five. Yeah. Well, yeah, or fifty-five. 
right? So let's. But you uh, were you were saying you were in New York in '65. But but all of this was coming out of the the what was coming into being like the sort of alternate, you know, these artists that were really poets, the beats, uh, mm-hmm. which is why I guess my dad would have been the beat, yeah. and beat. Um, so he was that here, was all like that was all coming. Leroy Jones was here. And yeah, I, I I yeah I sort of dated Leroy Jones's daughter. Lisa. Did you really? Yeah. Are you serious? And IS70, yeah. My yearbook is filled with love letters from her. I wish I oh. dated her more. We really liked each other. Lisa. <laughs> so cool. She had the most beautiful afro. Anyway, um, uh, and, but he disowned her. His ex-wife lived upstairs from me when I lived on Cooper Square. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. He sort of, really? he went and changed his name and sort of decided yeah. not to be with a white woman and have right. a half-white daughter, a mixed-race right. daughter. But anyway, I guess when, you know, the political correctness, it's, there's always people that on every political side or spectrum or ideology that always wants to take something to the extreme, and that always leads to a rebellion, you know, to the yin to the yang. And so out of the 50s, that, that sort of, you know, just like when you, if you hear about what the 50s were like of conformity, of McCarthyism, of fear, of people going underground, the idea that you could be gay and lose your job, Right. You know, the idea of, I mean, there's so much stuff going on. And uh, and so there was a rebellion to that, which led to the beatniks. It led to, you know, Jack Kerouac and led to Ginsburg and C- City Light Books in in San Francisco and Far and West. led to... Uh, National Lampoon. Well, that later. Right. Yeah, but then led, of course, to the 60s, mm-hmm. you know, which was the whole full rebellion. But that really was coming out of what was starting in the 50s. And, and again, the music world, you know. With, um, and then and then by the 70s, which was Lampoon, mm-hmm. you know, then it was, I think that, that, was the, that was the beginning of the cynical period. Well, I think, yeah, I think that's a good point because if you, like, look at, I don't know, in my own head, I try to organize different American decades. Yeah. And it feels like the 60s sort of opened things up, and the 70s was just cults and serial killers. It's like when things just turned <laughs> super dark, you know? It's, it's, and, yeah, wow. And, and hair bands and disco. <laughs> <laughs> but you still read some of those like old like um, Naked Lunch recently. I was listening to that as I was painting a little while ago. Oh, wow. That's and I'm just to like, listen to while you're painting. It is interesting, but it's also a reflection of the time, I guess. I was, like, I don't really read stuff that intense anymore. Just in the language it used and just the, the imagery and stuff is like, fuck. Blade Runner. So Blade Runner. Oh, so Blade Runner, uh, the term was from uh, Naked Lunch. Mm-hmm. And and uh, and then they used it for the title. I don't know how how that came to be for Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Oh yeah, I'm curious. Well, we'll have to look that up then. Yeah, we'll have to look that up. Did you see the new Blade Runner, John? Two days ago. What did you think? Two days ago. Yeah. Oh, All right. So my disappointment was that I saw it on a very nice iMac computer screen, and I really wish that I had seen this yeah, like on a giant yeah, yeah. screen. Most of the time yeah. I'm really fine with seeing a movie on no. on a on a lovely computer screen. No. Yeah. This, this time I'm like, oh just overwhelm me. <laughs> it was visually I believe just, I, I watched it on the uh, IMAX three D. Yeah. Which is the best way to watch this. I mean it's overwhelming. Really? And it's a long, long movie. Long and, movie. And it's slow, slow paced yeah. with with short bursts of action. Yeah. 
And the uh, the director is like a genius. So um, good. He's so good. And okay, uh, the cool. soundtrack is amazing because it's just sort of like ambient noise. Oh, yeah, that was so Han, Han. I think it was Hans Zimmer that did the soundtrack. And then at the yeah. and then at the end for the death spoiler, turn this off if yes. you haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah. Spoiler alert! This is a spoiler alert. At the end, the death scene of Jay, they they go back to the Vandela, Vandel, Vandalis, Vangelis, Vangelis, yeah. uh, death Chariots sequence. Of fire, Blade Runner. Yeah. yeah, no, but the right, the original yeah, death yeah. scene in Vangelis. I, I thought what I, I think the thing I really, I mean, there's so many things I actually really liked about it. But one is that uh, the Messiah. You think he's the Messiah character. He's the important character. Yeah. He's like Neo in Matrix, and you're following. Right. Yes. Right. Now you're confronting your father and you're letting your father just hit him. And then when they all come around, they go, oh, you thought you were him? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he's like, exactly. I kind of did. No, you're just, a side, you're, you're just a side character in this. And then he kind of had to deal with that. And I also love yeah. the relationship he had with his own sort of step down of uh, Android. The hologram. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man, that was so beautiful. What, what I didn't like as much is I actually felt that the world of the first Blade Runner with sort of the the Asian, the Mexican, that whole world was more integrated and more in your face, like seeing people eating and and I felt like that they sort of they simplified that a mm. bit and and it got a little bit more like Road Warrior when you were going out to the orphanage in the middle of this that felt a little bit a like I could have seen Mad Max scenes. driving there yeah. at that moment. I yeah. didn't think about that but that, felt, it, that yeah. felt more like a Mad Max world than the Blade Runner world. What do you think about yeah. that end, that Elvis scene? Where Elvis oh, I just love that with it. And I was just like, I was blown away. And Frank away. Sinatra like singing in the yeah, little hell. it was like, this is, I could stay in this room forever. Yeah. Like, it was the greatest thing. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it's I thought, it's, you know, sequels are really hard to do. And, and he, I think he nailed it as a sequel. It's sort of like Aliens. Yeah, yeah. yeah. An- mm-hmm. Another Ridley Scott follow-up. You know, by James totally. Cameron, and uh, that guy's that guy's doing the Dune follow up to or remaking Dune. Oh, that needs a serious remake. Yeah, yeah. it's I gonna mean, be I like, stunning. You know, I like the the one they did in the eighties. I love the, the book. Costumes, I love the David the Lynch one. They're all amazing. Right? Yeah. I, I, I was a little off on the David Lynch. I like. Sting. You didn't like it? Oh, no, oh, I didn't. Man, I like one of my with it. Yeah, I, I think ones. I saw it when I was older. I was older than you guys. Like these costumes all look great. <laughs> I was, you probably think you saw it when you were young. I saw it and I was just like, this kind of sucks. <laughs> so, what was it like uh, growing up then in New York City in the in that time? Uh, a lot of freedom. So there were things that when I was growing up that I would have never let my son do until he was older. Like by the time I was in second grade, I was roaming around the city, Hmm. hanging out, going to Tompkins Square Park by myself, Washington Square Park, looking at the yippies and hippies in the 60s. I had my own keys. My mom was at my mom and father at that point had I think they'd split up by like 66, 67, six years old. Did they both stay in New York? Uh, my dad uh, got a uh, one of those uh, walk-ups in Little Italy where you sh- you all share a bathroom on the okay. floor, and then the uh, the bathtub is your kitchen right by your kitchen sink, and you put a piece of wood I've on it becomes your yeah. yeah. So oh, he lived yeah, like that, yeah. and he used to pump gas at uh, uh, it's not a gas station anymore, but on Hudson, and uh, it's like Hudson Eleventh. There was a gas. It still looks like gas station, but it's not. And I used to go there and help him, and they would wow. t- tip me a dime. When I'd help him pump gas, wow! And then so he stayed in year in New York, and then he went back to L.A. He was uh, he got into the union, 
And then he would do um, commercial stuff. Like, he would be, like, the second cameraman or the third cameraman, like, on MASH or the Waltons or Oh, so he stuff stayed like in it then. He stayed For a while. In and okay. then he, he had other issues. So then he eventually uh, uh, ended up uh, working a midnight shift uh, in a factory uh, manufacturing video cassettes. Oh. And then when he like retired. VHS tapes? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He, he was, Those he, jobs don't exist in America yeah. anymore. Kim, Kim knows about my, my yeah, dad because I've, 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 I've written about it. That'll okay. be another podcast. We'll have a podcast just on, on, yeah. oh, <laughs> on how to be more sane than our parents. Yeah. <laughs> how to recover from your dysfunctional family. Yeah, yeah. no, but I mean, I think, the greatest, <laughs> I think the greatest favor he ever did me, other than teaching me how to shoot, ride a motorcycle type, and like survival skills, he was really like an outdoor. He was like a man's man survival guy. Oh, right. Yeah? And um, so, uh, did you guys go camping and stuff? Like yeah, that? camping and shooting and okay. right. I got my motorcycle license. I think so, like he did all the things that my mother's like, you know, and and a, a Jewish intellectual woman's like, no, don't do that. And he's like, all right, <laughs> get on the motorcycle, <laughs> shoot at the targets while you're moving. No, he didn't. No, well, he, was very, he was very safety-oriented, but very much like a, a guy's guy. But one of the things he did, other than those things, which I think I still have that side of me, which always surprises people, which would have explained Saturday night, like leaving you guys and going on a bike, oh, yeah. um, uh, is that he actually got away from me. And he moved back to California, which actually allowed me... Uh, to grow up with minimal, I mean, still contact, but I was able to grow up sort of in a sane environment. And oh, so, yeah. so growing up, one of the things I would say with the freedom came the freedom of creativity. Mm-hmm. So when I was a little kid, I was, uh, I remember drawing a comic strip. I must have been in like fourth grade of a gay couple. Uh, giving incorrect directions to a New Jersey couple that came into the village <laughs> and getting them lost on purpose. <laughs> and I, you know, I must have been like eight years old. And I was doing this, and I was drawing, doing drawings of heroin and pot, and like just like drawing out all the drugs and labeling them, and and like uh, scary stuff. Too, and right? I was doing doing. Pro- I was really into werewolves. I had this werewolf attacking prostitutes, and like, and I did as an animation, like with it's the like cells. Real Robert Williams. And I was yeah, I was doing like all this like hyper violence, hyper sexualized stuff. Um, and you still I was have some of these. Right? Some of them I do, yeah. And I like I was very into like I was going to. 8th Street and buying like Zap Comics, Underground Comics, like oh, in the Zap early comics, 70s, sure. like when I was 10, 11, yeah. and Von Bodie and Cheech Wizard, so I was drawing naked women, and the, Red they would be taken to the, the, the psychiatrist. First of all, I was doing some of this in school, mm. so the school psychiatrist would have contacted my mother, mm-hmm. they would have had long talks, then I would have had been going to therapy, and, mm. and they would have been work, trying to work this out of me. Mm-hmm. And I'd say that in the 60s and the early 70s, first of all, I was in the village, so that helped, uh, but... Uh, none of that. My mom was just happy I, as a single mom raising me mm. that, you know, she had to take me to a meeting or if I was by myself at home that I would, she would just give me some paper and some markers. Oh, or, you just occupy yourself. I just occupied myself and oh. I just drew. And, and so I would say that, you know, when we, th- you know, as I know this is about eventually my, my art, it's that, that that growing up of being really encouraged to create, mm-hmm. not encouraged to censor your creations, but just to just that the idea and the act of doing is 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 the right thing. Right. And that's, you know, people always talk about, well, that's the ideal in art. You should be doing what's inside of you, you should, until you try, and then it's like, slap. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, well, it's and, um, 
Well, there's all that judgment now. Right, and there's always been. I mean, you know, there's always been that judgment. I mean, yeah. you know, Michelangelo had all the male geni- genitalia painted over in his lifetime in The yeah. Last Judgment. Uh, Modigliani was arrested for pubic hair in his paintings in was Paris. He? I think so. We'll have to Google it, but I'm pretty sure he was arrested, or and his show was closed in Paris. Huh? It, it, it's always there. It's never, there's never a good old days. Yeah. It, it's always there. You don't necessarily get arrested, but you'll just be like a pariah or ostracized. Right. Now, right? Like so just, when I was a kid, it, it wasn't, especially I'd say, when I was a kid, especially growing up in the village, right? right? Like I wasn't growing up in the Bible Belt. I wasn't, you know, I was growing up, it, it was really a sense that it was, you know, everything I was doing was fine and, mm-hmm. uh, and just encouraged. And actually in, in PS41 where I went, in fifth grade, my art my art teacher Jerry Goldstein got me a, a scholarship to the Art Students League. Because huh. so, you were going there young, right? Or, yeah, I was eleven years old, and That's we and so cool. and I'd go there every Saturday, and we we and they gave us and you draw you were drawing new models at uh, yeah, and and then you know we would like peer into the classes that had like the hotter models, <laughs> and we had and we would run around the basement where all the skeletons were and play tag. Well, you know, you know there were a couple what? of other kids that I was with. That's interesting, even in my lifetime, because I was raised in the Bible Belt, you know, deep yeah. south, and I was still pretty young finding new drawing classes outside of school. Well, like you went to the league, yeah, and people didn't. It was, it's so funny how like even in the South in the eighties and nineties feels less censored than New York City in 2018. You know what I'm saying? There was more, they were more tolerant. Of, like, I needed to go to those life drawing classes, and it was a great thing for me. And people had the wherewithal back then to acknowledge that, whereas I, there's no way I'd let a 15-year-old in my life drawing class right now. There's no way. Why? Oh. Because you could get, arre- you could oh, get in because, trouble. because of, right. yeah, right. Oh, I could I get in a lot I, of trouble. No, I was just thinking from your own specific... If, if that wasn't the case, you wouldn't let a 15 Well, you would, you, oh, would get per, you would get permission from the parent. Like, I've had, I've had high I school. I did that I've once, John, yeah. and it made me so nervous the whole time. The mom was even in the classroom. Yeah. And I was like, this is fucked up. I don't like it. I was so nervous. Yeah. It's just weird. Yeah, it's funny you say that. Uh, you know, I, I know uh, this one artist right now, he, uh, he had this girl call him. She's like, yeah, I want to come and, you know, come and draw with you. But apparently she's underage, and then I guess her parents gave her permission to come to New York and, you know, study under him. But he's f- kind of freaking out about it. I want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. So he's like, he said yes, but he's inviting everybody to be there That's, while she's yeah. there, so then everything is right. safe. Because right now, that shit is not... Yeah. No, you want to be. Crazy. You want to. You want to be covered. You want to. It, it yeah. just makes sense, and I. I think it just makes sense anyway. I mean, I think like I know that. Uh, you know, right now there's this idea of where the balance is, and I. I don't know if now's the time to think about where the balance is. I think right now is the time for. People to just sort of say this is all the stuff that's been going on, and then the balance will come later. I agree. I, Push I, in one direction as far as it'll go. Yeah, I mean, right now there's just too much stuff. So even like, in fact, if like, you know, like when I've had like uh, high school girls that have uh, that wanted to study with me, I'd said, have your parents bring them over, mm-hmm. look at what's on my wall. I want them to know everything, and then you know I have like Evelyn around, or you know, or right. other people, and it's just. But I think that that's right. 
Yeah. You know, yes. I, it's like, I think that that's, I think it's okay to have a nurse in the room when the doctor, if a male doctor is looking at a I agree, a fem- but I mean, then yeah. for someone like me, though, whose parents were insane, yeah. and there was a venue that I could go to outside of my parents' supervision when yeah. I was 15, learn how to draw from a diverse group of people, it kind of, like... There was no, there's no good checks that would allow, I'm grateful I was able to do that. Yeah, you're right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And, and I think that in human behavior, that's a lot more likely to happen than a dangerous situation to happen. You know, there's a lot of positives when. Right. I mean, you know, everything in life's a balance. Sometimes when things are shaken up though, it's like if, you know, you take this glass of wine and you go like that, it takes a while for the balance to, and right Right. now, and right now we are in a, in a shakeup period. Right. Yeah. So it's 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 unrealistic to think like the reactions that you're reading on a daily basis, and you know you'd mentioned Balthus. We can talk about that later. But right. like that, the idea that that's not going to be brought up right now, and right. sometimes you'll you know things will be brought up where you, you can be you can feel like wow that feels a little extreme. But then the other balance is there's other stuff that's happening that's like I can't believe this person wasn't put in jail 40 years ago. Right. You know. Mm-hmm. So right. that's so we're in a, we happen to be in that moment right now, which is we're, we're really examining. And what... well, the water is rippling, and eventually yeah. there there will be a balance one way or another. Do you think human nature? This is philosophical, but it continues to improve itself in terms of like empathy violence, whatever, are we better today than we were 50 years ago and better at that 50 year? Like, do we just continue to become more and more sympathetic? I, I think that's a, that boy, that's a real, so. I, I, I think like, I'm more of a cynic I, I, than I, you are probably. I, I, I was that, about but. to start quoting true romance. You know, I read a lot of history. <laughs> 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 you know, with the Christopher Walken scene. Uh. Um, <laughs> I'm, inter- I'm really interested into that. In- interested in that shit. Um, but I do read a lot of history, and yeah. probably you know, there's always heaven and hell on Earth, right? There's always a moment where we're sitting here having a glass of wine. Where I'm looking at this beautiful landscape that's not on fire. You're looking at me, John. I'm looking at you. Come on. Very three very handsome, beautiful people. <laughs> um, and that's a heaven moment. And then right now, in you know, in in some other part of the world or in some other part even the states or another apartment in the five boroughs there's hell going there's on there's hell going on at right. this moment at this exact moment and multiple and I Absolutely. think that's one of the weird things to think about now so if I think overall in some places the fact that we can flush toilets and have clean water and we have electricity right. I think yeah I think we're better off than like kings in like you know the quattrocento Europe Right. You know, right. We, yeah. Like you know, we have electricity at night, and we have we can play music. And I mean, look at look at me. It, by all intents and purposes, I'm, you know, impoverished. I don't make any money. You know, <laughs> and then just look at these nights I get to have this room. Like it's it is kind of insane. Yeah. You know? So I, I wouldn't I, trade King Solomon's life for this. You yeah. know, my food's better. My Air temperature's better. My right. access to information is way I, I, I give thanks every time Your I'm in the shower. Better. Every My day in the better. shower, I have, I have like a prayer to my shower god and the toilet that flushes god, you know? Never, <laughs> never go back to a civilization without running water. That's yeah. the cutoff. When people say, John, wouldn't you, don't you think you'd be more appreciated in the Renaissance painting the way you do? And I'm like, first of all, if I ever went back in time, the smell oh would God. hit me. Yeah. Mm, like, I'd be yeah. like... 
<laughs> stink. What about this perfume I'm wearing? Yes, but underneath that perfume, it's bad, dude. You need more perfume. Your teeth. And yeah, and you, your teeth are soft. <laughs> oh, teeth alone. Oh, my God. I was reading this book, uh, I think it's called uh, Euclid's Window, and they were just tracking, you know, how, how math impacted the history of the world. How math? Math. Interesting. Mm. Yeah, the, you know, certain theories... And, you know, how, like, the Dark Ages just set us back so far. Like, we could be way ahead right now. We, we could be, oh, like, yeah. populating Mars right now if the Huge Dark Ages regression. didn't happen. Just because that amount of information just got thrown away. And it took them so long to just come back and just, you know, figure things out. And, yeah, like, um, I forget what king. Uh, it was a French king. And I think... Uh, somebody was throwing a bucket of shit out the window and even the king got splattered. <laughs> we would never it's like, the old, it's like that old Monty Python. It's like the old, well, it's uh, the old Monty <laughs> Python from the Holy Grail. He goes, he's got to be the king. Why? He's the only one that doesn't get shit all yeah, over exactly. him. Yeah, exactly. It's like, shit on him. Yeah. But also uh, back then, there was a whole different concept of smells too. Like, I can remember Stan telling me, I can't remember which French king either, I'm going to be really hopeless when it comes to quoting history here too, but there was a French king who told his mistress, he was he was away on a hunting expedition or something, and he said, I'll be gone for three weeks, don't wash. <laughs> <laughs> like he Naughty loved boy. her smell so much. That well, you know, everybody's got to have a fetish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we we better be careful about that Middle Ages because the you know that that movie that I didn't like on first watching, but now think of almost daily is Idiocracy. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. Um, you know from Beavis and Butthead uh, and uh, Office Space. Okay. Oh. Judge. We need to look at Judge. What's his, uh, his first name? Some Judge. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah, King of the Hill. And... Yeah, yeah. So anyway, with I, I I read yesterday. Mike Judge. Mike Judge, right? So idiocracy, I think about a lot these days, and it, it's our it's our modern day uh, medieval times where we would elect a reality star. Uh, and then we think of another reality person maybe to run against them. And yesterday, uh, I, I, every morning I watch In the Papers, which is just uh, sort of gives you a zeitgeist of what's going on on New York One, yeah. Yeah. And which I can, you can get without subscribing. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's a decorator now in New York who's realized that books are ugly. Because they don't match your furniture. Burn them. Uh, Fucking no. burn them. Uh, she turns. She turns. So when she when you pay her whatever thousand dollars, she takes all your books and she faces them. So just looking at the whites of the pages. Oh my god. So when you're talking, when you're thinking about Middle Ages, I was just like, well, here you know, this is worse than the Middle Ages because at least then they valued books and they had like monks like. At know, least the monks were transcribed. Like, yeah, that I was just thinking. I was like, boy, we're we're really we're trying to head. We're trying to go full stupid. Quickly. Yeah, we're doing pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> whitewashing everything. So after that, John, you were, you're in the village. You're going to the art students league. That's like high school. What after after that? What were? How did you all right, continue? So, all right. So I, I was drawing. Um, so a lot of my childhood is really important, actually, for my work because I think what I yeah, learned. Yeah, I think that's key. I think one of the things I learned is. Whatever you want to do is okay if you want to do it in art. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'm not talking about, like, whatever you want to do on the street, but if you have a a 
piece of drawing paper in front of you and you need to draw out your demons, your fantasies, your desires. You're not hurting anyone. You're your just... fears. That's what makes art. You know, like Edward right. Munch's The Scream, right? You know, it seemed to sell for a lot of money. It's a guy screaming on the bridge. It's like the anxiety of the human race all in this uh-huh. one scream. Uh-huh. Right. And... Um, so that's one of the things I learned. And then I also learned that it was a way that I could sort of cope with my environments. So when stuff was going around me that I didn't quite like, I had some place I could go inward and create my own world. So that uh. place of sanity. It was also a place of emulation. So like I would watch Saturday morning cartoons when Saturday morning used to have cartoons. Now they don't anymore, I've noticed. They're all news programs. But back then it would be Space Ghost or it'd be Johnny Quest or Space Ghost is great. And I would watch these cartoons on TV, and rather than just sitting there like a zombie watching them, I'd have like my markers and my and I would start and I was drawing to the TV like you know whether I was watching Scooby Doo. So it was like a way of sharing in it, like just being part of it. Like if I was reading if I was reading Peanuts, I was also drawing you know Charlie Brown and Linus. I was drawing Doctor when I was a little kid, like six. Seven, my dad, I think, got me, like, this roll paper, and I would just draw, like, uh, these landscapes of Dr. Seuss landscapes, you know, with those weird mountains and bridges. And so I think it was, so art for me was, one, I wasn't censored, Uh and the second thing was a way I could create my own worlds, Mm -hmm. and then also sort of emulate the worlds that I wanted to be a part of, and, 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 you know, so, like, if you, you know, I got exposed to Frank Frenzetta, and then I'd be like, oh, I want to, I want to paint like Frank Frazetta because I wanted I wanted to taste him in a way you know it's like it's like you know you have a great meal you want to cook it at home you want to find out how to recreate it to give yourself the pleasure that that thing gave you the pleasure of absolutely that's right yeah like when you do a master copy right which is why I still do master copies yeah you do beautiful but that's so enlightening to me because it does feel like those are three key ingredients that go into your Current creative experience, like your image making, it feels like that's really. I don't know. It gives me insight into your your world. And then when you were talking about um, kind of hiding in art or when things get intense, it's a place to be. It's amazing, and it reminds me of that one Mountain Goat song where it's like traumatic experience, and he just like puts on his headphones, you know? It's like, it feels like that is a place that artists really were learned, were taught to cherish, you know? Right. Like, well, I mean, and now, you know, people learn meditation to do that, or people go jogging, or people, you know, whatever, play video games for hours, whatever they do to escape to sort of control their own world for a while. But, but I do think so we artists have that. But so much more vulnerable than those things, because... You have something to present from that space. Like if you're jogging or playing a video game, you don't have something open for critique at the end of it. And so that loop is so interesting. Unless you're playing online. You suck, dude. <laughs> exactly. Why don't you just sell the game, man? Yeah. <laughs> That wasn't that bad, was I? Uh, Never be a sniper, you campy yeah. motherfucker. You know? So when was the moment when you stopped like imitating all those other like all the other art that you were doing and like start creating your own world? Like you do this incredible world building. So like so, when did it become your world? So my answer first answer is never. Okay. In the sense that I think that 
what happened, like whenever I hear someone like an artist saying, well, I got to find my own style or I got to find my own this, it's like, just, just work. Right. Just be yourself. Yeah, I, t- I tell and, students that all the time. And eventually, you know, and know that like, let's say you love like an, one specific artist, like, oh my God, I love Rembrandt. He's the greatest artist ever. And all your works look like R- Rembrandt E. Rembrandt Light. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Ish. Ish. <laughs> Scuola di Rembrandt. Um, um, may, yeah, maybe. Maybe look at more artists. So I okay. So I'll say my saving grace. So one is I've never stopped. I'm still looking at everybody. I will try and steal anything. I will absorb someone else's work. Like, how can I get that magic? Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm so greedy for other people's talents. You go to museums and it's just like, you know, and it can be anything. It can, and, and it goes all over the place. I like mean, one I'll more be, tool I, in your tool belt. Yeah, I'm looking at Basque at one moment going, my God, I, I wish I had this energy. And then I'm looking at like some artist I never heard of, some French artist that's like, you know, fourth level down who's just painted armor better than I've ever seen. And be like, uh-huh. oh my God. And and I, so this is the, so this is what I would say if I, if I had to give advice to young artists. <laughs> um, Listen up. I need it. So I would say that it's okay to to want to emulate and want to be inspired and at times you want to copy or use a piece in a painting. And I can give examples of this from the artists that we consider the greatest artists of all time that were ripping off each other and other people. But in the end, if you look at not one artist, but if you look at hundreds and thousands of artists, it's hard for you to be school of. If one moment you're looking at de Kooning's woman, and the next mm-hmm. you're looking at Mary Cassatt, and the next you're looking at Egon Schiele, and the next you're looking at George Gross or Otto Dix, and the next you're looking at Caravaggio, and they're all blowing you away, you actually, in fact, cannot end up painting like Caravaggio or like, you know, Egon Schiele because right. you're you're just they're they're all vibrating in you, and then you just end up being you, uh-huh. and because yeah. you've been pulled in too many ways, so you just end up somehow being you and taking a little bit of Egon Schiele and taking a little bit of Basquiat and taking, you know, a, a little bit of, you know, a, I don't know, like a, a Rembrandt or a, a Velasquez or, you know, name any thousands of thousands of artists. Isn't that human nature, though? I mean, it's more obvious in art because there's a visual, a, da- a tangible visual element mm-hmm. to it, but a human being is built that way you know I mean you have all these influences of your environment and your family and all of that and parts of that all all these infinitesimal parts of that become who you are right but I, I agree with that I did I disagree that that's human nature because I think humans are afraid I remember when I was young and you wouldn't want to necessarily know something because the obligation around it like God, I can't say I like that band because then I got to know all about this band. It was just like a reluctance. And like John's hunger, I think, does speak to something unique that isn't in all of us. Most of us are like, I go to this school, I look at these people, and I paint this way. You know what I'm saying? I think that's human nature, and John has somehow found a way to break away from that. Just an autodidact in a way. Just like constantly learning, constantly hungry is... I think uh, a fairly unique attribute. Oh wow! Do you think so? Really? Well, I mean, I think, but nonetheless, you cannot unless you live in a box. 
which you I think are people are going to be influenced. No, people don't live in. Well, some people live in boxes. I think I mean, people live in but... their own box. I think people, by design, navigate the world in their own boxes. Like, I think he, we're we're scared of other information. We're scared of shaking our thing up. We're scared. We want to know how this works, how this is done, and I do this, and I do this well, and I do this over and over again. I think that's more comfortable to a human than to be on a constant uh, quest for self-expansion to, to, is, is rare. To filter <laughs> things and reduce your experience. It's also, it's also, it's also greed. Huh. You know, like I'm greedy for inspiration. Yeah. You know, right. So just greedy. So I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm excited by lots of things. You know, like I'll hear a David Bowie song. And the lyric goes, I'm afraid of Americans. And all of a sudden, I start thinking about doing a painting called I'm Afraid of Americans. Yeah, or God is American, yes. in this case, it turned into. But, uh, but I, I do think but I do think a lot of artists have that. I don't, I don't think, I think originality is overrated in the modern idea of it. Because I think the most original, because now we look for, okay, originality, a new subject that's never been done, a way of applying paint that's never been done. Okay, mm-hmm. well, paint has been applied. You know, people are taking guns and blowing their arms onto canvas. So, you know, <laughs> you know, I, you blew your arm on canvas. You're just redundant of that German dude. You know, <laughs> that's you're kind of lame and armless. And um, the guy who nailed his testicles yeah, to yeah. I mean, there were you yeah, know my, the there were happenings right? in the yeah there were happenings in the 60s where a guy would masturbate in the middle of the gallery floor and there's still this like oh, a yeah. moment under, you know, the, under floor. the floor yeah under the, the staircase Is yeah, but yeah Burton? but I forgot yeah. it was Louis C.K. Louis C.K. <laughs> <laughs> with an audience of two um, good joke but I I uh but I think that um, so there's always this pressure to be original and how is my work going to be different? And but I think that the real way to be original is just sort of be true to your own personal experiences and be true to your influences. Get out there a lot. Just be greedy. I I, I like that concept because I always like to bring back the concept of the you know living in a hyper reality because. Right now, especially with all the different technology and social media, it's so much easier to be in your little box, to be confirmed with all whatever thought you already have. Right. And to step out of it, I think that's yeah. what you're trying to say, Marshall, right? Yeah. To kind of step out of your little comforting comfort zone and then like search for something that's completely new to you. Right. And then absorb that into you and then also and not stop there, but just keep expanding and expanding. It's like it's kind of cool. You know, like you learn so much more. You learn more, yeah. I think it's a lot. I think it's rare and challenging. Like, I don't think people are talking at GCA about de Kooning right now and then at whatever Parsons about a current contemporary painter, figure painter. You know, yeah. it's like your box is this. Actually, I, I feel bad about bringing a Basquiat because I think Jean- right now the money distorts his work. You know, because it's yeah, worth like so much. Right. Yeah, hundred, hundred, whatever that was. Last, it, but, it was a hundred. Uh, yeah, it was a lot. It, but but Jesus. he does he have but, a foundation? Like, who's getting all that money? Uh, his, dad, his dad. I think you were friends with him, right? I wasn't friends with him. He was the first person I got stoned with. Really? <laughs> I was fourteen. He was fifteen. I was in IS seventy. He was at City of School. He was at City of School with my one of my best friends, Eric. And him and Shannon and a few other the city school and they and uh, Jean Michel was he and Shannon were drawing uh, like comic book stuff mm. and I was too and so we we had that and wow. yeah so my first time but I wasn't I wasn't friends with him I mean okay. we, that one time you just we just got stoned with him 
Yeah, and he would. They were older than me. You know, they were a year older than me, and they were kind of like, you know. And I was getting stoned for my first time, so it was a little intimidating. <laughs> but it was before. I think it was before he started doing Samo, and he was he was and he was still in high school. He never graduated CS. He threw a pie in the in the principal's face. Nice. Um, but. Uh, uh, but uh, one of the things that you were saying to, about one of the th- things I, I, I always, so I've always loved his work. Actually, I'm kind of amazed by him. But one of the things I really loved about him is he really fits to where we are right now because he would work. I mean, yeah, he was, you know, doing drugs and not sleeping for a week, and doing manic work, a little bit like you and Michael without the drugs. That's right. You yeah. were naturally manic. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> but he w- and he would have the TV on. He ha- would have books all over the floor. Uh, he would have Charlie Parker on the turntable, and he would and he'd hear Charlie Parker, and he'd write Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker, Charlie Parker. Parker. Yeah, and then, like, some cartoon would come on, like Bugs Bunny, and he would start drawing like that. And then he'd have his Grey's Anatomy, because he had a car accident when he was young and had, like, a, a, I think his spleen was removed, something. But anyways, mom got him Grey's Anatomy, and have that. And all of a sudden, you see anatomical drawings. And then, like, his drug dealer would come and go, yeah, uh, yeah, Jean-Michel, uh, Jim. Give me a call, and he goes, "What's your number?" And then he'd write the number in, and mm-hmm. so like the, those early paintings from eighty to 85, 80, 84, 85, were you, when you look at them, and if you think of it like you know when you go on the internet now and you're you're listening to music and you have Audible and you're you're lo- uh-huh. lo- looking at the Daily News online and the yeah. YouTube video and all of this stuff is going on, and all this information is coming at you. But that's how he was working oh my in nineteen eighty. And so when you look at those works, it's like, and then, uh, you know, like when he'd scratch out a word and someone asked him once, it's like, why do you scratch out a word? He goes, well, if I scratch it out, I'll make you look at it more. Mm. It's like, oh my God, you're right. And I do. (laughs) And, and then he was, and then also, and again, I'm talking 80 to 85, not the late, not the last couple of years where I think his work really slid a lot. But I, but the other thing, like that was the mobile like type. Right, like the the gas he, station thing with Andy Warhol, the mobile station. Um, stuff that was that. actually it's funny that work is doing really well right now. But no, there's work past that even. That's, that's oh, okay. Uh, that was a, that was an outlet. That was that is what it was. It was what it was that that collaboration. But I I will say he also did the thing when I'm teaching. I always say the most important, the most important part of art, much more even than intent, is composition. Because like size you, and placement type stuff? Yeah, just how do you control a viewer's eye on your canvas? Yeah. And he was a master of composition. It's not how who draws the hand the best. It's not who has the best meaning behind their work. Mm-hmm. It's not, not conceptual revelant, relevance because, you know, it's about composition. And he was doing it in real time. So I could imagine him, you know, just absorbing all this information in real time while creating some sort of working composition as he just inputs this data onto the canvas. Yeah, he he was and he was and he was really knowledgeable and but he he had great composition when you look at those early a lot of those works like that work that just sold for a fortune to that Japanese collector. It's really beautifully composed. He just had really they is. I Steve Martin coined the term wall power. Yeah. But a lot of those works had wall power and a lot of art that I you know your work. You know your work has wall power. Mm-hmm. Tons of little paintings had wall power. He had these teeny paintings in our last show, and you know you see people just. And, yeah, yeah, totally. And, and I think that that's probably. I'm, I know I'm digressing or moving forward, but I think that one of 
one of the things I, I always struggle with and I think is the most important thing in art more than conceptual ideas is composition. I so think in music, are you like a, a music guy or a lyric guy? Like what, what hooks you? Uh, both. But uh, I'm one of those people that cannot, I have a really poor memory. So I will remember like three words and da-da-da-da-da. You know? <laughs> like, I'm afraid of America. Da, 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 da. <laughs> you like you the hook. You could do scat. <laughs> yeah. Hooks. Uh, I'm really bad at like lyrics. I'm really terrible at karaoke. <laughs> but I love lyrics. That's kind of how Ella Fitzgerald came up with her scat. Oh, lyrics. really? Yeah. She's bad she would, yeah, she would forget. And then yeah. she would just so I'm, be like, I'm terrible. But I do love lyrics. Blah, 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 you know, and I'm like a huge Bowie fan, and I love his lyrics. And, and I used to love albums that used to, you know, I used to read the lyrics along oh, with the... I used to always read the lyrics. Yeah, so I love the music and I love the lyrics. I love both. Okay. And I don't have that anymore. Albums do not come with lyrics anymore. What I was starting to do was download lyrics. I went, I went through a period about like eight years ago where I was really going to make my digital library and I would go and like, you know, do the search for lyrics and then paste it onto my iTunes. Nice. <laughs> so there's some, but you know, at some point you just like forget this. I love what you said about Basquiat and uh, wall power though, because I remember writing uh, for school at the time a review on his. Uh, on a show that I, I think I was at the Gagosian. Was it at the Gagosian back in 2000? Was that 2013? Mm-hmm. Um, and I had seen his work online up until then. And I had, oh. you know, just on the internet, and it didn't have that impact for me. I was just like, okay, well, all right. That looks interesting, but when I actually went and experienced it, and this is... Not the first time I had that feeling, but, I mean, when I actually experienced his work, there was a power in it that, I don't know, this sounds very metaphysical, and, but there was, and, and I do, and I do think his work was very metaphysical, like, there was something going on there that I cannot describe, like, I actually, I was incredibly moved by the energy. Like a pulse. Yeah, literally a pulse, yes. Like I was, I was riveted to the floor. Like there is this energy that is coming off of this work. What is making that happen? You know, I wish it was longer. I had gone back to look at it again when not all everybody was there, so I could analyze that on my own at the time. But I did not do that. But yeah, I was, I was sold on him after that. Yeah, I was I, like, okay. It, there's something going on. Here. It's weird that you know because he's selling so much right now, it sort of distorts him. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, well, he's overrated, is this? But actually, for me, he was never overrated. He was just this really spectacular. I'm going to use a word. I'm I use a phrase I'm not fond of. I'll use it anyway. He was he was an amazing image maker. Mm-hmm. Mm. That, there's a reason I don't like that term, but uh, but it has nothing to do. Do you find it like that term reductive to people? Well, I I was I'll go back to when I was a, a student at the new when I went after my years of like working in comics and I discovered the New York Academy of Art which I can talk about um, yeah but, I want to hear about but I uh, ended up teach, studying with a really amazing uh, painter wait and, at the New York Academy well he taught at the Academy but then he felt we were all too lazy and he had his own school on the on the West 85th Street I think and so who named was Michael Aviano oh, oh I know him yeah, yeah so sure. my, Michael was like Brilliant! Like he had, he books taught up the like, lead too. Yeah, he had books on like how to do everything, and and he bring you back down to the basics. And, and but meanwhile, like 
I went to the academy and I and I was then I was going in the evening. I was living in Greenpoint. I'd make make it all the way over to Michael's after the academy and then home. And I just wanted to like improve my skills, but I was an artist. Mm-hmm. And so I would every now and then I would just show him like stuff that I was working on at home. And some of the other students that were there that had been studying with for years saying, "Do you really think you're ready yet to be making your own?" art I mean to really be doing they wouldn't use art they'd say you'd really think you're ready yet to do your own image making <laughs> and I was just like I was like dude I'm an artist I mean you know being an artist isn't about like making well drawn hands or poorly drawn hands I mean if anybody's ever tried to to draw uh, Gauguin which I have done on num- numerous occasions I mean he, he's like got Fred Flintstone feet yeah totally <laughs> you know this guy is not Bouguereau Right, you know that doesn't make Gauguin like less of an artist than Bouguereau just because Bouguereau, on one hand, draws you know paints the best feet you've ever seen and the best yeah. hands clasp you've ever seen, and then you see Gauguin with like you know Flintstone, you know it's like Wilma and Betty. Yeah, uh, they're still great paintings because they're really beautifully composed. And then the second thing yep, after I can't agree more after the composition, I think is and Kim had mentioned this in her notes to me, but devotion and. At least, and when I say uh, conceptual ideas aren't important, I don't mean that they're not important. They should be, having a motivation to do what you do is important because it gets you out of bed, spending lots of money on art supplies and and taking away a life where you'd be earning more money in order to do what you're doing. So whatever motivates you, whether it's like, oh, I love painting flowers, what's your conceptual reason for painting flowers? Um, They're pretty and they give me pleasure. That's a conceptually good reason. Like, I would I never totally say agree. to an artist, yeah. like, really? Painting flowers? It's a conceptually... It's like, if they say, I really love them, they're really beautiful, I guess. And we'll go deeper. I don't know their life, but you cut them off. Well, I, they last for a while while I paint them. You know, like, yeah. I buy into it. I'll buy into what anybody wants to do, whether it's decorative, redundant, even if it's school of, you know, Caravaggio or anything. I will buy into any artist who just gets out of bed and says, today I'm going to work. I, how, can I, yeah. how can I tell them that the, what they're doing is wrong? Yeah, I, I could, the only way I would ever critique them is if I'd say, oh, you know what, that, the flower, if you want it to be stronger, maybe you should you know, add more chroma to it to pop. Like I would work within their, concept, with, within their framework. Yeah. And so you can have some people that have like, they think that their conceptual ideas have to be like, you know, this painting is about making sure that there's no more ethnic cleansing in so-and-so or this and this. And they can have really strong conceptual ideas. But when you visually look at the work, it's like you actually need the wall text. You actually need the wall text to explain to you what the conceptual idea is. Right. Yeah. And then you can have someone else who's just doing something simple, and it ends up becoming much more powerful. And, and I'm not sure what the mathematics on that are, but, you know, like how, what the percentage is. But I do think that as strong as the conceptual idea is, I think the devotion, like almost on a non-intellectual level, is what makes it. And one of the one of the examples I'll use is so conceptual painting would be Madonna and Child, right? Uh, you have right. a mother, you have a mother and child. So I can go into conceptual thing that thinking like let's say like we'll, we'll say like fourteen sixty mm-hmm. or fifteen. I'm sorry, fifteen sixty. Mm-hmm. We'll do fifteen fifty. Uh, you know, everybody. A lot of people are having babies. They're, you know, you you if you're an artist, you're at home and your wife has a baby and you see the baby breastfeeding. So that image of the Madonna and child is very popular image in just genre living. But now, right. because of whatever reasons, uh, pagan reasons, other reasons, the idea <coughs> of the mother child has been elevated 
you know, to a very strong Christian symbol, even though it wasn't there in the New Testament. Right. And, um, oh, and right. It, we were talking about this right. in the studio the other day. Right. So now it, it's brought, right. We talked about it. So mm-hmm. now it's, now you go, and this is an experience I had once when I was a, a student. I went to Siena to the Pinacoteca and I was looking at Madonna and child after Madonna and child. So it's concept, conceptual reason, devotional painting, because you are a Christian, you're a Catholic. I want you to look at the baby Jesus. It's the mother and the baby Jesus. I want you to think about this. I want you to give money to the church. I want you to be a devout Christian. I don't want you to sin. Right. right? So right. we're doing this. This painting is being done for all these reasons. And you look at Madonna and child after Madonna and child, like 30 Madonna and childs, 50 Madonna and childs, and it's like wallpaper. I get it, conceptually. Turns into a miasma of... Yeah, I get it. It's a mom. It's a baby. <laughs> All right, great. Another mom and baby. I get it. And you're doing the nod. You're doing that gallery nod of like, uh-huh. And you're not stopping, and all of a sudden you stop. It's a Madonna and child. You just saw like 25 Madonna and childs. But this one, the Madonna's painted like, like she, there's something in her. There's some energy. Right. And the baby and the touch of the hands. And the color is more vibrant. And the landscape now, it's not even generic hills. All of a sudden it's like Tuscany, and it's... Deep. Like Kim and was then, talking about the pulse. Yeah, and then you look at the name, and it's Giovanni Bellini. Right. And you just go, oh, that's how that motherfucker got known. <laughs> because of all this wallpaper of Madonna and Childs, he went, right? It's all the same conceptual idea, but he went more devotional. He went more compositionally into it. He went more whatever that is. But I always think it's a combination of composition, control. Devotional in the way you devote yourself to... A craft is that what you're saying, or a life of this? Or um, you just go deeper. It can't, it can't be somehow? craft because Basquiat didn't have the craft of Bouguereau or Jerome, but right. Basquiat's work is devotional at its best. And uh, is yeah, it, it's not about craft. It's is something it a term of like loving, like a passion. It's got to be. I think some Wyeth sort. would tell you it's about love. Andrew Wyeth. Uh, yeah, Andrew Wyeth said he felt everything he painted. I do he thi- had to be in love with. Him. I think it's about love. I, I feel like when I'm painting, I'm in love. I'm in fear of failure. I'm well, in love. I'm in everything. It's and like I, we're and it always feels new to me. Mm. These are like almost spiritual terms, like devotional and love and fear. And, and it also makes me think of like sacrifice. Like you were saying, someone getting up in the morning to choose to do this at the stake of, of a, a, an obviously easier path, you know? Like being whatever, a barista for 30 years is an easier path than, than uh, trying to express yourself constantly day in and day out and all the pitfalls of that. that or selling penny stocks. <laughs> yeah, selling. Sure. Bitcoin, man, we could invest in that. Ethereum. But what do you see? Yeah, Ethereum, thanks, Doug. What do you see like, because uh, you, you are someone who has followed that impulse in in all the senses that I admire greatly and since I sort of admired as I was a kid I always had my idols always and I'm not just blowing smoke but seemed to be guys like you who did very specific thing on their track and just pushed it and in sort of the in a little way the world be damned a little bit like you're just kind of pushing your your uh, muses. Okay. What are the the pitfalls of that? What Oof. are the consequences pro and, and well, sort before of... Before the, the pitfalls are obvious. Well, I'll, I'll get into them, but the successes of... So 
one of the things as an artist, the reason why I did that was one, probably when I was young, I wasn't censored very much. Mm -hmm. But also, um, I wanted to do work I could live with. That you yourself could could live with. with. I wanted to, like, if no one ever bought my, let's say I was super rich and I could just, like, afford to never sell my work. I want to paint. Like, I never understood an artist who goes, oh, I hate my own work. I'd be like, dude, maybe you should... Do something else. Work, no, or just work harder on it until you like it. I mean, you know, like if a chef is like, oh, my food is shit. Here, have some. You know, be like, well, I don't know, man. I, maybe I'll, you know, go to the restaurant next door. I, I don't know. You maybe, maybe you, oh, you eat it first. You taste it. Um, I just never understood. I can understand an artist feeling like I need to, oh, I wish I painted that better or this or that. But I never understood an artist who's just like, I hate my work because then it's like, but then who are you doing it for? And for me, yeah. I always felt... Yeah. So I always felt, because this will sort of answer it, because I'm answering in a little bit of a slow way, that, I, that my client was always me. Mm. And I was really paint My audience, people say, well, who's your audience? You know, like if you're going to paint like horse paintings, your audience might be people that own horses. Right. And you might say, and I do portraits of your horses. And that's mm. a really good thing. But my clientele is me. Uh-huh. And, you know, so then my goal in life is to find other people with money that ha- that are similar, or at least can look at my paintings and sort of get that they would want that too. Mm-hmm. But the right. other thing in my work, and this goes to being devotional, is I never want to bore myself. Mm. Huh. It's really important that I don't uh, get into ruts and bore myself. And if I start to feel like I'm even using one technique... I go and start using a different technique or a different approach or a different imprimatur yeah, or a different... Yeah, because your brush technique is, it varies from... Yeah, sometimes I... You, right, like I teach old master in direct painting, but like then I'll paint direct painting or I'll paint impasto or I'll paint that or I'll mix it all... Like, and even the whole thing is I just don't want to bore myself. I want, I want to look at my paintings and this even goes to... I know I, I pre-read uh, Kim's question, so this will sort of pre-answer even conceptually... Uh, she, she mentioned thinking about illustration and painting, and that's always a big thing. Right. And I don't think of my paintings are illustrative because um, being there, there are illustrations that are not illustrative, and there are paintings that are illustrative. So I'm not meaning like illus- all people that illustrate are illustrators, and all people that are painters are painters. I know some illustrators that are total souls of painters, and I know some painters that are total souls of illustrators. Mm. Right, but, so what draws the line for you? All right, so for me, uh, first of all, it's what we talked about when we were talking about fantasy books, it's about transcending. So the good illustrators, like let's see N.C., we talked about Andrew Wyeth, so his dad, N.C. Wyeth, right? He Another was, favorite of mine. He was asked to like do these children's books, mm-hmm. right? like Treasure Island. But his paintings were so much greater than illustrating the stories. And when you right. look at his paintings on their own, you don't, if you hear, oh, that's part of a story, that's great. But when you look at the way those clouds are painted with those oranges and there's those blues, it so goes beyond the... Con- Another thing, like the Giovanni Bellini of Madonna and Child, NCYF and Treasure Island, those paintings go so beyond the book. As great as the book is, mm. you don't need. You could throw that book out the window and you could just sit there with the paintings, never know it's from Treasure Island, never know a title, and you'd be blown away. Mm-hmm. So what, right. what the difference is transcendence. Yeah. The di- that art that depends on the conceptual reasoning to exist is eventually going to die. It just is. You, you know, I don't look at the Pieta. You don't need to look at the Pieta by Michelangelo and look at this dead guy 
being cradled by this woman and have to be a devout Catholic to get it, right? You right. could never even hear Catholicism. You see this woman and you see the way she's pinching the, the flesh and it's going to move you on some other level. And if someone said, oh, by the way, that's that guy, uh, Jesus of Nazareth, you go, really? Who is he? You know, and that would, and maybe that will, maybe when someone gives you conceptual information, it will add more dimensions to your appreciation. But your appreciation should, will come over art uh, well, without the concept. The church is borrowing from that kind of concept anyway that's already internalized by human beings. I mean, you see a mother and child together, you're already. Right. You, it's already this beautiful image. It is hardwired into our experience. Worshipful about and holding someone who is dying also, which was probably right. very common in the in that time. So, yeah. uh, what, so then we were ta- talking about the transcend. Oh, the 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 difference be illustration. I, whether yeah, the line the line that you draw, or if you don't draw a line between illustration and so I don't draw a line of illustration and painting based on how many friends I have who are illustrators. Painting for like fine art painting. Yeah, saying. but but I will say my own work conceptually. If I understand conceptually exactly what my work is about, like I could write a paragraph and say, and right here this means that, and that means that, and I'm telling the story of this, I will stop. And I will change everything. I actually need to be a viewer, not quite like it's not that I don't get themes in my work and I don't have ideas. But if someone else says, "Oh, John, when you did that, that was so clever," often I'll look at it and say, "Oh, yeah, yes, of course it is." I didn't. Yes. Know, I didn't <laughs> Thank you. Yes, I yes. was. Uh, I was 100. No, I will be like, "Oh my God, I didn't see that." Right, and like that, that painting. Uh, oh, uh, with the fire. Uh, yeah, which one? The one that. Come near the fire with the water tower, or there's yeah, a lot of fires. Yeah, exactly. Like, yeah, like that was like the. Remember, I was saying it was like that David Lynch. Uh, uh, oh, it was a David Lynchian reference. Uh, what's that thing where they? She lights the. She lights the. Um, is it a lumberyard or what? Mm. She lights something on. Oh God, now what I can't movie? Think of it. I. David Lynch, Twin Twin Peaks. Oh, which he, I haven't. Yeah. She, she light. There's a a woman who lights the um, lumberyard or something on fire. Anyway, and now I'm I've seen I've seen all of it. I, do, I don't know, but I didn't I, know the reference. Th- that's coming up to me. I mean, I'm sure. It's well, I don't there, know. But I'm gonna. I'm, yeah. I'll put it in the show notes. You'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, but I had talked to you about it at the time. Yeah. It was your painting where? Wow. She's lighting the. The, is it the water tower? The, yeah, the water tower and the bricks are on fire and in, in come right. near the fire. Come near the fire, yes. Yeah. And a Picasso brick is in there too. And oh, you Picasso and brick. you yeah. totally were had had no, no intention no, at all. I had no clue. Even yeah. though you do bring you do bring um, contemporary. Oh, I, I absolutely into your work, but Ab- it's absolutely. Funny that that didn't no, I just only because I didn't see yeah. Twin Peaks. So, so even when I'm con- even when I have conceptual ideas, I still need to surprise myself, and I think that that's one of the things that's different than illustration in its purest form. Whether even if it's in fine art, is to illustrate a concept. It's almost more like propaganda. Oh, or, yeah, or it's just but a, you see it all the time. Conceptual art, right? It's a concept. And then you illustrate the concept, and the concept is more important than the, you know, like, um, you know, whether it's jelly beans, which you mentioned, you know, on the, I saw at the Whitney a couple of years ago, on uh, this um, Latin artist who had died of AIDS, and he put some jelly beans in the corner of 
uh, well, we saw it at the Whitney, but wherever it was shown, and it's actually a very moving piece. It, he, the jelly beans are his exact weight, or it's candies, maybe, not jelly huh. beans. Maybe it's oh, candies, right? We right. And it's his exact weight of when he died, or when he uh, that he did it, right? You know, as he was dying of AIDS and losing his weight. Wow. And the idea behind it is that you go and have a piece of candy. And so as you're eating the candy, you're also taking away his weight. Huh? So concept so to me that's kind of illustration because it's it's a conceptually very specific piece and and it need needed that explanation next to it in order for it to because if I just put a, a pile of candy here on eighty sixth street and people grabbed it. Right. It wouldn't mean what he meant. You actually need that specific wall text. Uh-huh. And that candy illustrates that specific wall and text. It, maybe so. to a degree it elicits a very specific response. Like that isn't terribly open-ended. Like that is a response everyone would feel. Right. And he, tragedy and, he, and sadness. Right. And he died. And right. And a man dying of a tragedy. And, and maybe more fine art is a little more open to Well, I, I would definitely say it's fine art, but it's fine art with an Ill, illustrative edge. Right. Just like there's yeah. illustration, like N.C. Wyeth is definitely illustration, but it has a fine art. Like, you know, and things aren't always black and white. Everything is grays. But I, I will say with my own work that if someone ever needs me to have, like, a strong conceptual specific, like this means this and this means that and that means that... I I can't do it, and if I could do it, I wouldn't do it. And if I and if I, and if my conceptual idea was that important in writing, like I could change the way you guys thought about racism or sexism or people starving, you know, in Nigeria. And if I could do a work of art or write a piece that would change your way, and all of a sudden people would stop starving in Nigeria, or there wouldn't be you know Boko Haram or something. If I could do that. I would do it, but I don't think I can do that through art. And, you know, I, I always think when I see, like, people at the Whitney Biennial and they do their piece of, like, a messed up room and they say, this is about, you know, people not having water and this. And I'm like, all right. I I mean, I like what you're trying to say, but is this doing right. it? You know, like, right. is this going to get people, like, with fresh drinking water? Or I forget who said it, but, um, you know, they're saying that a uh, great painting shouldn't answer questions. It should just raise more questions or something along those lines. I'm probably butchering it. No, I think that that's how I feel. Right? For me. Yeah. And and I do think art is a little bit like a fortune cookie. You know, like they always say how to read a fortune cookie is you open the fortune cookie you always, at the end it always says in bed. You know, (laughs) so like you will be really lucky tomorrow in bed. (laughs) You never got those ones. Yeah. So so supposedly if you write in bed it makes all fortune. But I always do think like whatever I'm saying, whatever I'm saying to you guys about art yeah. At the end, it will always be for me. Mm-hmm. Like, in bed. for me in bed. <laughs> because because I, I do think that I, I, I don't feel like from, like it's up to me to to lecture to anyone else on what they should do to be right, an artist. Because it's your propaganda. It's yeah, like you're I, just... I, but I do think for me it's important to, not to be influenced by other people or to listen to people's critiques or feedback, but I do think that the one thing I have about, what all of us have about being an artist is being us. Mm-hmm. And that, like, you know, let's say, like, you know, Marshall, I was like, Marshall, you know, this was good, but, you know, you should do this, this, and this, and this, and this. Then you'd be like, great, you mean you want me to paint a John Wellington? Right. Yeah. yeah and exactly. and that's right. like, 
but then why and and even when I'm teaching I'm so careful like when I'm teaching the materials and techniques I'm like I'm like guys you have me for 15 weeks I'm teaching you indirect painting I don't always paint like this sometimes I'm going to be dogmatic and say for this class you're going to use this color and this color and you're going to mix it this way and you're going to do that if you think that this is how I think you should paint after this today's class you're wrong don't you know don't tell John said we should always do this I never say you should always do anything Right, but this is just to have like, and I'm so careful about trying to protect people's different spirits, and just it's like just saying, you know, today I'm going to teach you how to make an Italian sauce. That yeah. doesn't mean you can't, you know, eat Korean food tomorrow or have Southern Italian versus Northern Italian, or you know, it's just it's just like little tools. I'm so careful to want to have everybody have their own spirit because I think I want people to be careful about allowing me to have my own spirit. Mm-hmm. I love that. I think that's exactly the spirit I try to teach from too, because it's like, it's the only reason that all four of us who paint are in this room. And it's a, it's the valid reason that we're all doing what we're doing. It's like, I get to see tons painting and learn a little bit about his life. And he gets to see mine and learn a bit about my life and if they look the same, it, it's it's like it negates the whole thing. It's like just do grab as many tools as you can, as many influences, and push your thing as far as you can go. So then everybody gets to learn and gets a little elevated. You right. Know? It's just yeah. right. So it's being expansive in knowledge, but not. I don't want to ever art direct other people on what they should do. Right. Right. Although I'm gonna have to step in and direct us to our break. Okay. Drink break. Yeah, drink break. So welcome back from break. And we were just talking about um, the Art Students League and how you had to have a conversation about litigation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Just sensitivity training in in the workplace and how the league, they were saying that a lot of the... It's a special case because there's nudity in the classroom and reference that has nudity in it and stuff could get you in a lot of trouble if that shows up on your laptop, but it's sort of a workplace necessity in a school like that, right. was what we were saying. Yeah, and I, I wanted to tie that in uh, to the fact that we are very, you know, PC now, and, and even the Metropolitan Museum of Art had to uh, recently deal with that issue with the... Uh, the painting Therese uh, Dreaming by Balthus, by Balthus, the 1938 painting that mm-hmm. he did, and there was a call to to take that down. Well, it's a little bit more complex. It's weirder than that. It was a oh, petition was with a like a, a woman wrote a so because they, they sort of were, right. So these complaints, two, and she they, said actually, if you even just like put up a wall text and said, I think they really wanted a wall text. I'm not sure why they said take it. Well, they, I think she at first wanted it taken down, and then she was like, well, if you at least put a wall text up. The way I read it, it from okay. Jerry Salt was they wanted it down. I don't. Yeah, I don't but, but I think that they did Salt, change. That was the original. That was yeah. the original. Yeah. Well, I think that that's always been like I remember reading about uh, the Goya's Maj, the Maja, the Goya's Maja about like seven or eight years ago in some in some art school, um, an art history class. The professor had the, the reclining nude up, and the students petitioned to have it removed, saying the Goya painting was offensive. Mm. Um, I, I I I'm uncomfortable using the word PC or political correctness. Okay. Only for me. Only because you can be in a completely right-wing 
situation. And like I remember when uh, I'm trying to remember whether this is under the Bush administration, they were, they had to cover up the breasts of the statues. Yes. Somewhere. So I think they it's like Guernica. Historically, the UN did during the Bush administration when oh, they did? declared war. They covered up uh, the image of Guernica that was in the in, UN. Oh, was it at the UN at the time? It, oh. No, not the painting. They had, had a, an they had an image of it. Yeah, it's in that Simon Shama uh, power of art. I, th- I think this idea of censoring art is not. I mean, I think sometimes you know. It, I mean, I always think of the extreme left and the extreme right. Probably always have much more in common than moderate. Mm-hmm. Thinkers, mm-hmm. because extremists and ideologues, you you always you can see this. You can always say, oh, "I was, I was brought up like you know my parents were extreme communists, and I became an extreme right wing person." And it's mm-hmm. like, I, yeah, you're just you, you, the extremism stays, and you you switch in Train the ideologies, the or or you know. Uh, so I, 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 not that right now I know that like the Balthus thing, it's like a politically correct thing, but you know what, you could you could have that in some other place and it would be taken down not by uh, feminists who are thinking about, you know, women being molested and all these other things, mm-hmm. but you could have it by, you know, some completely different ideology also what do you, wanting it down. What do you think of an artist like Balthus, even taking the politics out of it just in, in terms of wall power? What do you uh, think Balthus, Balthus has insane wall power. I think he's, yeah, in a, for me, now this is very personal, but I think he's an I mean, he's an incredible artist. Um, I do think that he intentionally tried to push people's buttons. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that that's a bad strategy in becoming Mm -hmm. well-known. You know, Paul Cadmus was an unknown artist until he was commissioned to to do The Fleet Comes In. And he showed like... uh, Another league guy, Cadmus. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, 14th Street uh, School with Tooker and French. And, uh, And... the, the fleet comes in, has two sailors sort of passing, I think they're passing cigarettes to each other and looking at each other, um, you know. Suggestively. Very suggestively and uh, lasc- lasciviously, I think <laughs> was the word I was looking for. Oh, yes. and, uh, and there were some, I'm going to use the, an old term, floozies walking, who might have been women of the women of the night. And there were cigarette packs Blayton on the hussies. floor. Yeah, blatant hussies. And, it, and he got death threats and was considered un-American, and there were all these things. And, and the painting went, was committed, you know, it was part of the WPA, I, th- I think it was part of the WPA commission, went off the walls. It actually ended up in uh, the Naval Academy, the famous oh. Naval Academy. Down really? Uh, and it was in an admiral's office for decades. Huh. Really? Until it eventually came out and then was shown. And But that made his career. I mean, people wanted to kill him and thought he was a communist and everything else. But all of a sudden, people knew who Paul Cadmus was. Balthus did. So what did Balthus do? He did the music lesson, right? It's the, if you yeah, look at the, the music the, lesson, the craziest painting ever. And made. it's not like even like Teresa Dreaming, where it's like, okay, it's sort of pedophilia, it's white panties, it's this. I mean... There is no hidden meaning in the music lesson. It is a naked girl with another woman and nude, and it's yeah. it's a shocking painting. To look at that and not have a... It, you, you'd have to have, like, no emotions. Yeah, and back to back to sort of like that naked lunch idea. Whenever I show anyone the music lesson, it's shocking. It's, it's like there's sh- nothing like that right it's now. A it's a like shocking crazy. painting, and it's shocked, and it made him well-known. And I do think he... All right, so I do think his paintings transcend the subject. And, you know, I was talking about composition and wall power. Or I, when I use wall power, I'm really, Steve Mar- that's Steve Martin's term, as far as I know. 
and every gallerist uses it now, so I probably don't want to use it. <laughs> uh, but in terms of composition, Balthus's paintings are gorgeously composed. The way you know, furniture is put in, rugs are put in. He controls your eye. It's very hard to leave a Balthus painting. The way his poses are, too. Like thinking about the the kid on the floor coloring just the awkward, weird pose. And yeah. Then the, the one kind of like holding that string above her head. It's just mm-hmm. like, where do these poses come and, from? And I don't he, know if I can pose yeah, And he's the... Broken, yeah, kind of brokeny, like weird. Yeah. And he's the cat. Whenever you see the cat, that's yeah. Balthus. Oh, really? Yeah, he oh, was. He's the king of cats. He did an early self-portrait in his early twenties. He called himself, I think, it's the king of cats or something. And he's so when you see that cat, so he's inserting himself. Yeah, I, but I so okay. So Balthus, you look at Balthus, gorgeously painted, in my opinion, for me. Like I think so cookie. too. I agree, hundred uh, percent. Beautifully composed for me. Uh, at times, uncom- uncomfortable to see a 12-year-old girl or 11-year-old girl with her leg, like a beautiful pose, beautifully painted, but then you see a little bit of white underwear. Does it sometimes make me feel uncomfortable? Like, like uh, because all of a sudden I'm feeling the sexualization of a little kid, mm-hmm. and I don't want to feel that. And so does that hit me? Yeah. And But do I feel the painting should be banned for that? No. But does it speak to me in things like I'm like, Ew, uh, sometimes. And yet I still love his work right. because I think his art transcends that. And when they, when they interviewed, I think it was Teresa, you know, because people, his models lived and they interviewed her and other, and they said, well, what was it like posing? He goes, well, he'd do that. And then he'd go, well, what do you do? Well, sometimes we'd watch soap operas, <laughs> you know, uh-huh. I think he would, so you know, now. yeah, it was, but right. It's, right. It wasn't, it wasn't molestation. It wasn't like, and then, you know, he made me have sex. Like, that didn't exist. So if he had thoughts of that, if he did have sexual thoughts, which he, he always denied, personally, when I look at his paintings, it's like me, when, I, when I'm painting Asian women, it would be kind of weird for me to say, and, but I don't find Asian women beautiful. Of course I do. Now, does that mean I want to have sex with every Asian woman? No. But it's an ideal beauty. And certainly when I'm painting a beautiful black man, I also find black, you know, like Ricky, one of my models right now, I find him beautiful. Do I want to have sex with him? Absolutely not. Sorry, Ricky. I mean, if I was gay, I would in a second. But I, but it's not. But I can still appreciate beauty. Did right? Did he somehow find the eroticism in the Balthus? Find the eroticism in these girls, even though he denied it. I gotta think he, he he's he, he's a pretty smart guy, and I he mean, knew what he was doing. And I think he did. But I think he lived. I think in his case, he lived it out in the paintings, and he wasn't a Sandusky or a you know a, or you know. But it's an interesting point, like, about eroticism. Like, I always I always rejected that fact, you know. I had guy friends when you're, like, 12, 13, or whatever, even older. They're like, oh, I don't even know what a handsome guy is. Like, that's weird, you know? And it's like, what are you talking about? Like, you know what, you know what like, that, like, attractive is and hyper-attractive? Mm-hmm. Like, you don't have to be straight or gay or... It's you know what I'm saying. Right. I know what a great looking dog is. Do you know what I'm saying? Right, like Ma- Maplethorpe, means- Maplethorpe, in between his photographing beautiful men, certainly probably knew who, what a beautiful woman looked like. Of course, besides yeah. Patty. It's weird when people <laughs> say when people deny that or like I remember, like I don't know if people do anymore. I just remember when I was a kid, like that sort of pervasive. Attitude. Well, at that time, also you want to try and you know to be fair, when you're young, you're just trying to find out who you are, what you are, and you become very defensive about an identity you're not even, you know, that's a whole nother thing when you're a kid. When you get older, and I think when you're talking about, like, are times better? Mm-hmm. 
uh, depending on where you are, I do, I do think, I think with lots of bumps, and I think this we're in a real bump moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I, but I do think, uh, to put in spiritual terms, uh, we're heading into the age, we're leaving the age of Pisces, the age of the fish, which is the age of Jesus, and we're going to the age of Aquarius, which is the age of humanity. And I do, but I think it's like uh, thinking of going into new generations. The 60s didn't start in 1960. Mm -hmm. 1960 was still 1958. The 60s started in 63, 64. So even if we're heading into a new time, and the new time is that you can have friends who are gay, you can go, uh, you can have friends who are straight, you can have friends who don't identify by their gender, you can marry a black man or an, an Asian woman or a, a, a Jewish man and a Muslim man can marry in New York. Can you explore fetishism and eroticism on, on in, the, in a painting? Um, I will in a second. Just, uh, <laughs> boy, that's a real jump. But I'm saying that I do feel that this time is coming, but I feel like, you know, we're in, right now as we do this podcast, we're in 2018, and so we're in the very beginning of a new cycle. Mm-hmm. So it might be a couple of hundred years of battling this out, but certainly... Like in New York City, like being able to go out on the street and eat Thai food, Italian food, Japanese food, like if you're downtown in the, in the, like in one block, like every, like the amount of exposure, the amount of openness right, is just, I don't think it's ever existed before. And I don't, I mean, I know Marco Polo brought pasta to Italy, but him as an outlier, I don't think this type of exposure that we've had has ever existed before. Mm. And... But on the other hand, there's always the old guard that wants to say, no, we're bringing you back. Right. Well, that's and I think, that that, I think that's the battle that we, like... unfortunately, have to live through right now. So now, now you want to ask about well, fetishism. For, I was going to just say, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Yeah, and there's growing pains. Mm-hmm. It's, we're, in, we're in our adolescence. <laughs> we're, we, we, we're speaking with goofy voices. and. Well, do you think that any art should be censored. We talked about Balthus a little bit and and you seem you know, I, I don't maybe know. not, but do you think there's a call I had a I think I mentioned this before. I had a, a psychiatrist friend who was saying from a very, you know, liberal point of view, we should just burn all the Ayn Rand books. Like he didn't like that thought. Yeah, she's a crappy writer, but I don't think we should burn her books. <laughs> well, right. No, well, I mean, she her was a, sucks. I like mean, I'm not talking about her ideology. I I have problems with that too, but just you know, God bless anybody who can get through her prose. <laughs> you know, that's like, you know, <laughs> power to you. Own by your drink. Well, I think that's well but I no, I don't. With the fetishism and eroticism, like, is it? I, I, I'm not is sure. It allowed? I'm not sure how to ant. Well, the first thing, I'm not sure about banning art or that, like, like should I don't think like idea. Hitler's art should be destroyed, right? Like Hitler's paintings, or like uh, I don't think so. Uh, or um, uh, what's it, John Wayne Gacy's clown paintings? Oh yeah, well, I don't think like John Wayne Gacy. That touches clown... on a whole other thing for me. No, but I don't think they should be like <laughs> John Wayne Gacy was, you know, a serial killer, and therefore we should burn and not show. I mean, like I would go see a show. I know people that collect John Wayne Gacy paintings. I, you know, I, yeah, totally. And I, mean, I don't. I mean, he was a. I guess he was considered a monster, and you know, but I don't think his work should be destroyed. Now. It's interesting. I think photography touches on something else for me, and I and I know photography is art, and great photographers, you know, be it Ansel Adams or you know, as a, you know, all these the great. But photography is a little bit different because so much of the art is done through a machine, and it's done through a hundredth of a second, uh-huh. and it's different. And so, yeah, like I think if someone's taking photographs of little girls, well, although it was um, what's her name who took. 
photos of her children. Sally Mann. Sally Mann. Yeah. Um, I don't think her work should be banned, uh, but I but I could see like if I, if I was like no work should ever be banned. No, no. I'm like I don't know. Photography gets very. It's a little bit different, you know. But I think when someone's painting like a Balthus, no, I don't think it should be banned. I and I think if someone wants to put a wall text up. No or matter. even a warning to say, you know, like you should be over 16 to go into this gallery. I find that. I don't think that that's... I used to... When I used to have Halloween parties for Ben, I used to call... I mean, his... One, I was lucky. I, You know, we were living in uh, NoHo. But I used to tell all the parents that had never been over before. I said, by the way, there's a lot of nudity. There's all my paintings on the wall. There's nudity. There's full frontal nudity. And I never had... I was lucky or... Ben was lucky because his friends that all the parents were super cool and they were like, we don't care. But I, but I felt it was my duty as a parent to warn other parents that the content of our apartment where Ben grew up in had nudity in it and had, and had things. And I didn't think it's my responsibility. I didn't think I had the right to say to other parents, like, hey, well, you should just let your kids see whatever they want. It's like, mm. that is, no, you, it's their decision. Right. And I wanted yeah. to make sure they had the decision. I never had the arrogance to think. So I would never have a problem with having a show and having a sign outside saying, not that my work is, <laughs> my work's not that intense, but if it was <laughs> in that intense, I, I wouldn't have a problem with that. I think it isn't, wrong to give people warnings about the content that they're going to go see. Mm. Um, I think that burning works, even Ayn Rand, or Ayn Rand, <laughs> uh, I think that that is uh, just ridiculous. Um, and I, I think that censorship of art goes, goes really bad quickly. Mm-hmm. It, you know, at first you think you're censoring the right stuff, and then all of a sudden you're censoring the wrong stuff. I can't agree more. I think no matter what the content is, exposure makes us better. I mean, it's like living in this city. Like, you get exposed to so many things, just like you were saying. And it, like, it solidifies things. It makes you stronger. It makes you, you know, like, you are on this quest to get more and more information and stimulus. It's Mm -hmm. like, that can only be healthy. And I, I even think bad thoughts in the world, like, whoever... Steve Bannon or something, it's like, they're there, let's reckon with it. You know what I'm right. saying? I'm not scared of it. Well, it's yeah, like, just reckon. Behind a curtain. Right. right. I, I, I really do agree with that. I mean, and also, I, I do have to say, this is on a side note about the Balthus painting. If they're offended by the Balthus painting, what do they do when they pass a newsstand and look at cosmopolitan covers? And, God, and the, or like when I open up Daily News, I see Kim Kardashian like wearing almost nothing, or, yeah, or the women in the Grammys, like... You know, with more cleavage and Definitely like a double I mean, standard going yeah. On. So I'm hit with so much. Speaking of objectified stuff that has no level of art. So my thoughts are. Uh, so one of the things I talked about was tra- devotion, mm-hmm. and the other thing I did mention a little bit about is transcendence. So I think the greatest art transcends the concept, and even transcends, like in Balthus, it even transcends. The, the the hints of pedo- or, or ob- obvious overtones of pedophilia, which mm-hmm. are there in his works. I mean, there's no way you can look at a Balthus. I mean, not all his works were of a young girl showing underwear, but there are enough of them. Mm-hmm. And there's no way you can look at them and say, oh, he wasn't interested in that at all. I mean, he was, but that's not what made the work great. The work is great despite that. Right. 
And I think that that's what art is. I think, you know, art, like, Dostoevsky's, you know, A Crime and Punishment's about a, a, a killer. A guy who murdered two women with an axe. Right. I buy you his know? painting. <laughs> no, but I mean, it, it's, it's a dark book, and you're sort of rooting for the, the kill. This, this killer is killing for some, and he's a, he's a despicable human. Right. This guy. I mean, he's not like you go, and we're sort of rooting for him. I hope you don't get caught. Yeah, hide. You know, the painters are downstairs and waiting for them to leave. And <laughs> yeah, now downstairs. sneak out. And, you know, well, the, the house painting, they're painting the floor or something. Oh, sorry, I was translating yeah. that. Oh, no. But I mean, but the thing is, you wouldn't say, oh, I can't read that. I can't read Crime and Punishment because the protagonist, the person that he's making, he's manipulating you to root for, that he doesn't get caught is a guy who took an axe to two old women. Right. But they, and, and also he was an anti-Semite, and it's, it's semi-implied that one of the, the old women were Jewish, maybe. And but they are, they are, you know, it's still there a There is a book. movement to take a lot of that stuff there out. There is, and it yeah. comes from every side. I think that's sure, the thing. Of it's course. the left and the, the extremists want to reduce, you know, it all goes back to Orwell's 1984, Newspeak, Reduction uh-huh. of thought, reduction of experience. Right. Yeah, it's not a bipartisan issue by any means. It's just, why, why are we scared of thought? Yeah. Be it, be it whatever your take on positive or negative, I think it all goes into the mix and makes us stronger. And, and I do think for those of us who do push b- buttons, mm-hmm. like in my work, and I know we'll get to this <laughs> Well, the, the fetish stuff, yeah. but but my work ha- has push buttons, and I knew it was push buttons, and then people like at the school that I teach at, and people said, you know, the problem reason why you're not getting this teaching job or reason why they're looking at you like this because your work is da da da, and if you didn't do like I'll put it in specific terms, if you didn't put Asian women in your work, you would do better in this and this and this, mm-hmm. and when I hear that, there's a smart person would say, I'm no longer going to paint Asian women. They are right. I'm going to help my career. I will get a gallery now, just like galleries are interested in me. But the, the Smart, dumb but art- I think there's an intelligence behind integrity as well. I think it's reductive yeah. to just say smart. Like, yeah, you're right. I was being physical. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I just wanted to clarify. No, but, but, I, but, I, but a smart person in the sense of, like, you know, thinking short term. A but, cunning person. But, but I – but it, it – it contradicted one of the other things I hadn't mentioned yet about being an artist for me. So I've mentioned like devotion, I've mentioned transcendence. But the other thing I just thought of, and this is very personal, and this is really that fortune cookie for me, as I always felt that in bed. I will be strong. And Marshall, you're like this too, actually, in your work. But um, I thought, whatever is weird about me, whatever is different about me, whatever is the strangest thing about me is what I should embrace and paint because that's ultimately the thing that will last and I felt go the weirdest and and also as an artist I don't have to be an accountant that has some weird S&M fetish after work you know where I'm paying someone to burn me with a cigarette you know I get to be a painter I don't have to live out any crap I get to just put it in my art and then live sort of kind of like a normal life yeah because I think it's also it's like when you relay that to me it's finding your your crowd a little bit it's like talking it's relating like it's if i'm honest about my painting what i'm putting on there even though you'll catch flack and shit but 
it's like I like the people who like my paintings, and it's almost a litmus test. It's an interesting way to go through socially because it's like... Oh, that is, it's so true. It's so true. I remember one of my first shows, I did a painting that was really weird about like a, an acid trip. And this couple bought it, and we're going to put it in their little girl's room. And they're like, oh, we just love this painting. And I got a chance to talk to them for a little while. And I was like, I love these people. Yeah. And so I'm communicating and learning about people that I respond to. Right. And, 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 and I'm not looking for a big audience. I've never craved any of that. And it's like, I just look for people who I can relate to, you know? Yeah, you got to kind of put your personality on the line. Right. And yeah. just be cool with the fact that you, you know, and just double down on it. Double down. And just don't it's like, yeah. fuck and just keep going. It's no matter true. what. Because like John was saying, at the end of the day, it's like you are the client, right? If it, if what, whatever you're doing is not making you excited, then why are you doing it? And well, how, I yeah. I think that plays out in, in artwork that doesn't excite you is if the artist does not believe in it themselves. Yeah. Then how can we as an audience be expected exactly. to believe in it? You have to be- right. really believe in whatever you're doing. But I think but, the shame is right now a lot of what we're ingesting is so watered down and tempered on a mainstream level that it's it's like white noise. You know, it's like I don't know uh, Damien Hurst dots. He doesn't believe in that. The people buying it don't believe in it. And it's what we see, and it's just like, what is this? Yeah, that's a whole nother... What the fuck is this? But it's just, why are we just ingesting bullshit the whole time? It doesn't make us mad. It doesn't make us happy. It doesn't make us feel anything. That's a whole... (laughs) Well, let's not jump into there yet. Why why don't we we go back to what you were saying? How about fetishism? (laughs) Well, I'm just curious... We're going to have to do a few of these podcasts on you, John. uh, (laughs) This could go on The role of fetish... Well, yeah, I guess... Fetishism or eroticism and or eroticism in your work. What is the all right? I'm gonna, what is the purpose of that as a vehicle in your visual? Narrative? All right, I'll, I'll do eroticism first because I think that's easier. I would say for me, I actually don't find most of my work erotic. And when someone when so I feel that there's a group of people that hate my art and love my art and they're both like you know when I said the left and the right sometimes can censor the same thing mm-hmm. they're coming from completely different sides but they both hate the Balthus painting mm-hmm. uh huh right yeah uh huh yeah okay right one is because they're feminist the other like Christian right or they're like fundamentalist Muslim but both of them would love to burn the painting mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel that there's a, a two groups of people that one group that hates my like they'll see an Asian woman. And one group will be like, oh, my God, this white colonialist, and he's objectifying Asian women, and he's this, and he's that, and he's racist. And then there's another group, like usually guys, sometimes women, they're like, oh, my God, that's so hot, that's so sexy. And I look at both of them, and I'm like, like, wow, really? (laughs) And I look at both of them, I go, you guys actually have a lot in common, because you're both getting my work at that same surface level. Right. Uh So... You know, one is being turned on and one is being repulsed. Okay. So to me, they're kind of like... Very similar Like, responses. I want to introduce them, like, in the speed dating or something. Man. Like, <laughs> you know, like, guys, yeah, something can happen here. I'm just saying there's a magic. <laughs> I'm not calling myself a yenta. I'm just saying. <laughs> so, 
Um, but I, I feel like my, now that's not to say that none of my work is erotic. And sometimes there's a couple, like I have a painting up on my studio right now, the, the, the dressing room ghost. And that's like, that painting is like, like one of the few paintings I've looked at and I go, that's, it's not really erotic to me, but I can get when someone goes, oh my God, that's erotic. I, I get it. Um, but my whole thing is that when I use erotic images, it's to transcend eroticism. It is not there. I, I and I, sometimes I was using specific erotic images as sort of a seductor, a, a seductor, seductress, seductor, as a way of bringing someone in to sort of slap them back. And when I say slap them back, I really mean slap me back. Mm -hmm. So we talked about the water tower. Mm -hmm. So I had a burning water tower, and I have this woman who's sort of, I forget, she's like bikini. She's not nude, but she's in a bikini, mm -hmm. and she's very like, and she's looking at Seductive. you, but her, but and her, but her eyes are red, and the whole place is like an apocalyptic nightmare. Mm -hmm. And she's saying, "Come near the fire." Now, someone who only gets that, like on, like some guy, like man, she's so fucking hot, Damn. or some woman, like, "Oh my god, how dare you objectify that Asian woman that way?" I'm like, maybe you guys aren't looking at my painting that way or when you walk past a newsstand as I said earlier you, bar you barely can contain yourself because you're either so excited and turned on or you're so angry and furious mm -hmm. and, and my paintings I always hope with exceptions because there are exceptions there always are but most of the time when I'm using erotic images it's to transcend eroticism and it's something that you'd written to me in questions which was so that you picked up on I don't even know if we talked about it but it is about the vanitas mm -hmm. and it is also about Picking images that I want to paint. So mm -hmm. where the eroticism comes in is I want to paint sometimes images of beauty, but then I want to transcend that to tell other stories. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and and that just comes to... And now, fetish... No, I was just thinking, but then it's like you were talking about New Stan, Kim Kardashian, and, and it just recently dawned on me that people don't like Kim Kardashian ironically. Like, it's really like that is an image that is something to aspire to, which I didn't realize that. I was like, whoa, like it's not I'm an ironic enjoyment. Sorry. And then I'm thinking about... I'm going to get a butt implant. Cause... <laughs> There's a well, lot of memes out there, though. Yeah, but people just like unequivocally love them and, uh, oh, John, I'll take some more of that, too. And, and so I was kind of thinking about your work and what you were saying just then. It would take a bit of an, uh, an elevated audience, like your, your tribe, to get what you're saying about your, your work because that's a sophisticated take. And I think the 99% of the people out there are just like, Oh yeah, Kim Kardashian's awesome. I saw it on Glamour magazine. That's exactly what I want to be. It's the greatest way to live ever, and all that stuff. And then it's like, but you're trying to get people to dig further, and that's going to be a limited audience. Yeah, you know the people who dig. It's like, well, I guess I'm trying to get me to dig further. I, I love that. Oh my god. Yeah. Into so the that's podcast. it. And then, uh, <laughs> no, but I mean, using it as a catalyst. Yeah, but I mean, I think a lot of it is working your own things out. I mean, the more you work like, on your art, the like, more your art works on you. So, like, if let's say, like, I'm a, I have attraction to blonde-haired, blue-eyed women, right? So my, but whatever my ideals of beauty are, or you know, with Ricky, you know, who I find beautiful, I think it's about 
going into that and, and transcending it and, fi- and making something beautiful. Like I think even when I'm doing a burning water tower, I don't try and paint an ugly burning water tower. Right. I hope that you look at that water tower in the fire and you go, oh my oh, God. Oh, that water tower is so hot. Yeah, but I do. <laughs> I hope that you, I mean, I'm, let me put it this way. When I'm painting a burning water tower or bricks crumbling or water flooding, I'm painting it with the same in love and devotion as I'm painting, you know, a breast or the, the, the trap trapezius muscle you know like no, and you like, totally achieve that i mean i'm you know I, I i that's the devotional part you know whether it's a tree or whether it's a body part they all become part of the, the that and that's the part different and that's a difference you know, by the way between a pinup just because like i i went to an art fair and i saw like um someone had said like oh your your work reminded me of this person and i looked at the work and it was actually it was asian they painted asian women lying on beds like a like so like the only thing that was missing was the staples from the fold out, mm-hmm. and and I was like, why does this remind? Because it's an Asian woman, and I was like, have you ever do you ever look at my paintings? I mean, mm. you know, like I have like fucking falling mouths and f- you know places on fire and floods and there's a lot of stuff going on in my paintings, right? right. And this is a person who's just basically play, painting the Playboy centerfold. Well, it's and, I, and so it's, it's so interesting to me because what you were saying with Basquiat, it's the composition. It's the even though we're we're not wanting to use this word, it's the the power off the wall. Yeah. And the first time I saw your work, I loved it instantly. Wow, I was nice. not struck by any of the the characters you were using. I wasn't saying like. It took me a while to realize that there were sort of themes you were dealing with. It was just like, right. it's an awesome painting. I get what's going on. And even full circle both, this was the same thing. I think the first painting I really remember was Alice. Do you remember that one? She's like brushing her hair. Great painting. It's the one at the Met, right? No, this one is oh. at, it's in It's in Paris. I, uh, I do know it. Oh, it's at, um, uh, it's at Beauborg. Yeah, and or she's Pompidou. like, uh, the Pompidou. And she's like an adult woman, or maybe not. I don't know. I, that was my read on it. I was like, what a great painting. I was just struck. And I had none of that that um, weight, whatever that is, what Balthus means when you say he's a great painter. I didn't know much about him, and I was just like, oh, that's an awesome painting. It didn't look different than much of the other stuff. Similar to yours, it was all that surface composition narrative themes how you beautifully like pour over every detail and i didn't see any real stick political sticking points when i first looked at yours or alice at the at the pompadour and it's interesting that was my entry to into both of you guys which kind of goes to a little bit of um that Balthus, what you were saying, you appreciate about not Balthus, uh, Basquiat about that you know just like it hit me as an image and paint first you know Right. right I, I do want to talk about fetishism because I find that that's a really interesting word. Mm-hmm. So interesting that in one of my sketchbooks about five, six, whatever years ago, I looked it up. And give you know, us, be, give us your definition. All right, I wish I could read it. Merriam-Webster's. <laughs> yeah, it was a Merriam-Webster's, and I wrote it on my sketchbook. So I, I have such a bad memory. I cannot. I can only paraphrase. I'm, a, I'm not a verbatim person. But the thing is, when you hear the word fetishism, you think of like a, a woman in thigh-high boots or, a, you know, a guy in a dog collar or whatever 
fetish, but fetishism is not a sexualized term originally. It's a religious term. Right. And, and I find it to be maybe... I mean, now, semantics and the way we think about words and what a word once had as a meaning versus what a word once has, now has, presently has. I mean, words change. But one of the things I do love about the word fetishism in my own thoughts, and certainly in the thoughts in, like, a room like this where, you know, like, you know, we're, we're talking, we're, we can certainly share our ideas in a safe place. Um, it's a safe tree house. It's job. a safe tree house. It's a safe, they're at the safe house. Uh, is, is that I, I like the idea of fetishism that one of the definitely, if I, I know, so this is going to be a paraphrase, but it's when you give more importance to an object than there is, or you add an extra importance. So it was a religious, so when you had a religious statue of a Venus, and oh it wasn't God. Venus, but it was a stone Venus and you wore your pagan worship of the statue mm-hmm. that was a fetish that was a fetish object mm-hmm. and then I thought wait a minute that's what art is art is you're painting um you're painting a bowl of fruit right like Caravaggio basket threw some fruit in you know the old joke of like hey you're painting a bowl of fruit but like I we just finished copying the 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 Caravaggio basket of fruit and it, class, a, class, yeah, and it is a yeah, and it is a basket of fruit, but you start to copy it, and you start to see the little water drops, and you start to see the little mitts of rot and the curled leaves, and you realize oh, that leaves. it's fetishized because, in fact, it's not just a basket of fruit. It is the story of life. It's a story of time. It's a story of death. The composition, wall power, all that. It, it's just there. And so fetishism to me is giving something more importance than what it is. And that to me is what art is. And that's why I can go into the Met and I can look at Van Gogh painting his crappy, ugly shoes on that stupid parquet floor <laughs> in Auvers-sur-Oise or wherever he painted or Aix-en-Provence. And, and I'm mem- mesmerized by this painting of his two silly little work boots with the shoelaces untied and little diagonals because he was devotional in the moment of painting Mm -hmm. to those shoes and he fetishized those shoes and he gave those shoes a higher importance than what in fact they were. And so... So they transcend their original Exactly. So the word fetishizing, the reason why I wanted to go back to it because I actually feel that that's what we as artists do when we're at our very best. And that's why I think as important as the subject is, whether... I'm doing a burning water tower with a woman seducing you and it's apocalyptic, or whether I'm just outside painting a tree. Mm-hmm. If I can get into the mindset of being devotional, of being transcendent, of making the tree more than just a tree, mm. fetishizing it, creating ah. something else, even though it's just the tree, and you see this, like you see in Indina Brodsky's work, when she's drawing a silly tree, it's not a silly tree, it's the most important thing you've ever seen when you look at it. I mean, I look at her trees, I'm like, this is the most important drawing I've ever seen at that moment when I'm with it because she's fetishized the tree. She's transcended. Sorry, Dean, if you disagree, <laughs> but she's, and that's why the, it works. And I think that that's why, you know, muddy shoes work. And that's why I think like the Messonnier painting that's in the same 19th century wing, you know, the Battle of Napoleon with all the soldiers that all look identical and everything that he spent years and years doing and why people walk past it is as much as beautifully as it's painted, and every inch of that painting is probably technically painted better than I'll ever be able to paint my entire life. I mean, the grass in that painting is a lesson in how to paint grass. It's unbelievable. Mm. But yet, 
for all the great conceptual reasons for that being, it, it didn't get fetishized quite. I st- I shouldn't use it as an example because I actually, in fact, love the painting. Mm-hmm. I do love it, but it isn't as powerful as those those silly shoes that Van Gogh painted. Mm-hmm. And I think that I think that. Uh, it's a bad example because I do love that painting, uh, uh, but I, I'll take it back. I do love it. I love it because it's so quirky and weird, and because people do walk by it and and don't give it the love it deserves. Um, but I do think that fetishizing, making something more important than it is, is the nature of the artist. We make objects. We create objects. We create objects that sometimes need to be there to celebrate some dynasty, or some military battle, or some religious propaganda, or. Crossing the Delaware. Crossing the Delaware or some or some decorative reason, you know, to have a horse painting or a still life. But the really great artists make a pair more than just a pair. And the really bad artists, the pair just stays a pair. Mm. Wow. That's beautiful, actually. Huh. That's why we love you, John. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my, my, my raison d'etre. I want to bring fetishism back to its original meaning. Yes. But it is true. I, I think a, a lot of the theme of this podcast is, yeah, I've, God, in the classes I teach and everything, it's like, well, a camera can do it. Why do you do a thing when a camera can do it? Because it's like, there's so much love in that image. It's a moment in time. And I, and I always think about this, like, when I was learning to figure draw, you learn all these things about it's less about learning how to draw more about sort of like learning how to live and you look at a living breathing model and the only way to draw it better is sort of like character traits in a way it's not so much like drawing on a canvas it's like if i want to represent who this person is my judgment's out the window. I'm just staring at this thing as if I'm asking it questions. And it's teaching me in my preconceived notions, any judgments I have on what beauty is or anything are only going to get in the way. You're just receiving knowledge and you're just notating it as if you're taking mm. down a like a script or something, like writing what someone's saying. And the act of being humble in front of someone for like, whatever, like the six years straight I was doing that is just, it like gets in you on some level and you can never shake the idea that it it builds those big character traits, like receive information, don't prejudge anything, just be open to whatever that thing is in front of you, you know? Right. It's like, it's, and that's sort of like in a way, exactly what you were talking about fetishizing. You could say, you don't you fetishize the model. You just make them sort of what see all their humanity. Just like push it as far as you can. You make, know? Yeah, actually, uh, I took a Stephen Cell drawing class recently, and he was talking about how to approach a drawing, uh, you know, a model. And like, there's so much information in front of you, right? Like, yeah. how do you make it simple? Like, how do you like? Where do you start? You know, for a beginner. And his whole thing. Uh, what he said stuck with me because he said, look, just look at it and just pick, pick a point that, that excites you. You know, it could be the way the, the hair is falling on It's his shoulder. hair. I was about to say, for yeah. Steve, it's his hair. Or, or it could right. be the way the light, <laughs> right. 
could be the way the light is, you know, falling on her nose, or it, it right. could just be the pose, like the the way the hip is, you know, it, like it could be anything. But it's, it's something that moves you personally, like because it's you know, that uh, not, it's that aha moment. Yeah, it's yeah. that moment you go <gasps> like that. <gasps> And yeah. you and it's like I want to capture that exactly you right. Need that emotion. If you can't do that, you can't work as well. Yeah, like I like, can't. It, otherwise, you're just it, like yeah. copying this thing, and yeah. it yeah. means nothing. Although I have three words when it comes to Stephen Sales hair. <laughs> and how how he do that? <laughs> Four words. I'm sorry. <laughs> how he do that? <laughs> I look at Stephen Sales drawing here. I'm like. Yeah. How do you do that? <laughs> well, but th- that's such a great point, Tone, because I, a few years back, I decided I've learned a shit ton about this art. I've learned composition, theory, how to organize something, even politics of it. And I was like, I'm only going to listen to my own body. If it excites me, if I think it's funny, whatever my visceral response is, that's the only prerequisite for throwing it in a painting. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, if it makes me laugh, if if those balloons make me laugh, put them in. Don't yeah. worry about what's the right or wrong, right. or if if the organization of those gazelles somehow makes me excited. That's the only parameter I need. Yeah. You know? I think it's, it's surprising yourself. Yeah, yeah it's, it's like the difference between sort of being inside your head versus sort of living in the moment and reacting to the thing that's in front of you. That's right, going back to reactions. Yeah. You learn all this shit that puts you up in your head, and then eventually you're just reacting again. Yeah. Just like, yeah. just notating. And it takes reaction. a while to go back to that. To it takes forever. Yeah, that's the, like, that's like sort of the Buddhist journey. Yeah. It's, yeah. It totally is. Like, you, you, you. Life's complexities are apparent when you're a student and you try to organize them and, and, and essentially, well, I guess they'd say the tree is a tree. And then at the end of your journey, it's just back to being a tree and you're just reacting to whatever's around you. With your, with your specific, you're an instrument of observation and notation. So do you guys ever have art crises? Like where you like working and you got think like oh my god I know what my next painting how it's going to turn out before you start. No, like, how it's going to turn out. Have you ever had that yet? Start. Where you're just like you you're like okay this is my next painting and then in your brain you've already seen it played out and what it'll look like finished. Yeah. Why would that, I mean, that be a crisis? Yeah, why would it be a crisis? Because I kind of. Um, well, for me it is because like I always like to sort of surprise. I I I always want to. I don't. Want, I hate to say this. Oh, you I don't, don't really want to know the end of the story. I don't. So. That's what got me sculpting, is I had a whole painting planned out, and I was like this, and I was like, okay, and it'll look like this. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I can't do this. And I told Eveline, this one you need a supportive partner. Um, I said, I, I don't think I can paint this. I got to do something else. And I started those bunker sculptures and the bunker lyrics, my, my art poetry or whatever, art lyrics I called them. Yeah, those because, are so badass. Because, the and the figures, I started teaching myself because I knew the an- I knew what the next answer to the painting was, and I had to yeah. do some sculpting before I could go back to painting again be- yeah. and go back with a new eye. Like, uh. which, which, but I was thinking about this because you're saying, like, you know, you're going to surprise yourself, and all of a sudden I got to that moment going, thinking, this isn't a surprise. This is kind of a, I, I'm not going to be surprised. And oh, I and it yeah. really and I thought and I and I wasn't going to have that moment that Tun talked about with Stephen Sale, which was like, oh, 
I was going to have that moment. I was, I would have done a nice painting, right? Because I would have tried to paint it well-ish. Right. Although probably wouldn't have been painted as well-ish as something that I had those moments of devotion with. But it was right. going to be un, non-devotional, non-surprise, none all the things I loved about making art. And I had to just change it up and give give up painting yeah. for six months. And but how your paintings seem so... I don't want to, yeah. The, I mean, the the detail in them is, and the and the preparation that you do to make it all happen, like the the transfer uh, photos that you've been showing of, of how you transferred. Uh, yeah, that well, these are architectural. Rec- these are these are recent. All seems very predetermined. But these are the last two paintings, and in fact, as predetermined as they are, they've been changing. Okay. But that's only the last two. Air rate over Greenpoint, the last one shown. It was being changed. I never knew what was going to happen. I saw that, Is that in the, the process. Was that yeah. like the first one was in night? I want to say. What year oh, was the, that? Fir- the first one? time I did Air Raid over Greenpoint was in 1983. Okay. But it was a self portrait with, uh, with me against some buildings, very small painting. Okay. And some B 24 bombers and some searchlights and some flak smoke. And were um, you working with models then? I was looking in the mirror at a self portrait. Okay, but like the plain models, because right now you have those. Uh, no, I think I just had some a photograph. Of, okay. And yeah, for this for this time, I actually bought monogram models off eBay, painted them to be sort of Trumpian, like they're gold, but gold with blue. Mm-hmm. Because I, I always I always think of things from a yin and I, I try to think of things from a yin and yang. So I used gold because it was Trumpian, but then if you notice that there's like this really intense blue in the three planes I did, mm-hmm. because gold and blue is also sort of Egyptian to me, and a lot of times I use that combination in a lot of my Tip paintings. Why, uh, why would you want to reference the Egyptian? I think it's a past life thing. Okay, so that's a whole other... Yeah, that I can't get too deep into because um, I, it, it, it's very superficial in terms of my, my knowledge. Like I can't say... Oh, and in past life, I was this and this and this and this, and I did this, and I can speak fluent, you know, whatever, because of that. Mm. It's more like comes with me with images I've been addicted to working with since my childhood. And you recognize them somehow. And I recognize them, they keep coming back. Even I think the Asian women might be something to do with who I might have been at another. Who knows? It's a tough one to touch on because there's no proof. There's no anything. No, are they says. are they surrogates for you in the paintings? All, uh, not every in the, the Asian women. Uh, a huge percentage of them. It was, it was my self portrait. They were me. Huh. Not all of them. Not when they were full demons. Okay. Sometimes there's, there's sometimes they were they, they were you know the whole the whole thing in the series of ebooks I did was idols, demons, saints. Right. So sometimes they were idol. They were idolatry. Uh, sometimes they're demons, sometimes they're saints, sometimes they were also self-portraits. Um, in terms of uh, idolatry, like fetishism, a lot of times in a, in a certain, especially, it still reoccurs, but a lot of times there's idolatry in my work, mm-hmm. and I really embrace it because I, it's always false. Idolatry, just mm-hmm. a little bit like art is always a little bit of a lie. Like that, like that painting you did of the Statue of Christ? Yeah, right. That was the 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 girls were idolatry, mm-hmm. and the Christ statue was idolatry. Mm-hmm. The statue of Christ, the Sacré Cœur, the you know the bleeding, heart, the Sacred Heart, that's not Jesus, right? Right. Some 
artist, some sculptor who was commissioned to do like you know multiples. Right, they were cat. They're it's a very expensive sculpture that I painted off of. But he's not Jesus of Nazareth. It's some guy's interpretation of Jesus of Nazareth in like the the early twentieth uh, uh, century. You know, as a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, beautiful, you know, Willem Dafoe. Yeah, a little more beautiful. I'd say more Brad Pitt. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not that William Defoe's so bad, but it was more Brad Pitt. I mean, you know, Brad Pitt with the long hair. You know, true romance, Brad Pitt. Uh, but, but what do you mean? Like all painting is a lie. A lie. That's that's uh, incendiary. Well, yes, it is. I all right. So I think I think it's a lie and a truth. Okay, sounds like a kids game. Two truths. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, I, well, I mean, I think it's our personal truths. But you know, when you're painting a pear, it's not a real pear. You can't eat it. It's a idea of a pear. You, when you're doing a sculpture, a religious sculpture, it's like of, Platonic. If you're doing a Jesus on the crucifixion, he's and you hang it in the back of the in the in the back of the church. And everybody's looking at the, and you, you know, I know one of the Ten Commandments said, you know, no false idols, you know, the, right. the, the golden calf. Uh-huh. However, Christianity threw that one. The Muslims and the Jews basically stuck to that. But the Christians sort of argued their way around it so that they could make depictions of God. They could make depictions. That's why you have an old man almost touching the finger of a young, gorgeous man, you know, in the, the Capella Sistina. You know the birth, birth of Adam. You're they, somehow the Christians did that. Now, it's kind of a lie, in the mm. sense it's not God and that's right. not Adam, but we take it as that. And I'm not saying the lie in a bad sense. Again, it's a little bit facetious, but I do think that art is a beautiful lie. But the tr- the truth might be the feelings around it. Yes, and that's are. why. And it, and I do believe in the truth of it. But there is there is also the. The, the the false side there's also the idolatry in art you know and what is it sometimes a pipe is just a what is the, the Ceci, ce n'est pas un pipe. Wait, right <laughs> oh is that Magritte yeah yeah okay yeah totally this is not a pipe this yeah. is not a pipe that's it that's what he was that's basically what I'm saying that it, it is not a pipe but yes it and, and yes it is a pipe and that's and that tension is also great you know, like, like you know, I'm looking at you painting the two naked women and the industrial. I'm like, oh my god, you're two naked women and this and this and this. And in fact, they're not naked women. It's paint. Mm-hmm. It's a bunch of colors put on with a brush. Sometimes very delicately, sometimes quickly. And it's not naked women. The fact that I can take in this lie that and believe that they're naked women, yeah. when all it is is pigment. Right. You you it, you paint so well and so like. The illusion is ever there. Do you ever find yourself... I do this sometimes. Like, this is just piles of mud and, like, you know, sticks with hair on the end. And somehow a little bit of know-how, you can make an image that looks like something. Like, does that that, blow your mind all the time? It does, and I think of that every day. And, like, I just started uh, teaching uh, the painting uh, two class. And I said, so when you're teachers have ever said you know don't don't be muddy i said you know you're painting like if you're painting with really good paint you're painting with with you're painting from mud from sienna 
Yeah. Yeah, raw sienna Ochre. and then burnt sienna, burnt mud. Totally. And I said, and if you're a vegan, you don't want to use an ivory black by like Vasari because it's, you know, it's animal bone charred. Uh-huh. And back in the day, it was animal, a burnt tusk from an elephant. Yeah. And the hairs, you know, are badger or sable or, and yeah. I do, I think about that all the time. And that, alchemy. and that was the next thing. Well, I step into From my fet- class. It all becomes kind of religious, right? It's it fetishism, does. alchemy. That's the next thing. It's alchemy. It's yeah. magic. It is magic. Yes. In, in, I, I step into my class sometimes and I'm just like looking around like, and I'm the teacher, right? I'm supposed to be telling people how to do this thing. And I'm like, I can't believe this works. Yeah. Every time, like how, wait, we're... It's still, I, I can explain it and sort of demystify it in the way that a magician would talk about. Well, you just scratch them with this hand and then that would. But it's like, I still can't believe right. it. I have a question. Uh, do any of you uh, do digital art? Yeah, I've played around with it before. I'm, yeah. I, I'm a total Luddite. I don't. Okay. I, I hardly can email. Because I, I, I have. Play, I have played around with digital. I have played around with digital yeah, art. Knows. And oh yeah, Dropbox. Try to get me on Dropbox, John. We you're you're out of luck. Which I've been getting notifications the whole time that mine's full. So yeah. I'm out. I'm back out. Yeah. Um, yeah, it costs more money to expand your Dropbox. Uh, it's a it's never it's an ever more expensive hole. So I I have done some digital art, not professionally, but just I had like an iPad Pro, I have this gorgeous stylus, like Procreate, like these really great programs. Oh, so back when you No, no, now, recently, like within the last two years, or last year and a half, and I I got an iPad Pro, and I was like, oh, well, the whole thing, and of course, all the concept artists I know now all work digitally, they don't work with oils or acrylics, or, well, they didn't never work with oils, but they worked with acrylic and airbrush or gouache, and so I was using it. And uh, and I did a really objectified woman from imagination, like pure Playboy, with fetishized just rubber rubber boots. Yeah, just because because even if fetishism <laughs> has another meaning, I still go to the meaning we use today, just because I want to be contemporary. <laughs> um, and 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 I was doing it, and I I felt like it's a lot. First of all, it's a lot of effort because anything you care about is a lot of effort, and in the end, it, it just remains zeros and ones. And as I was doing it, I was like, I would rather go back to painting, pushing mud with hairs. Right. Like, that's a, that's a personal thing. It's more tangible. It's like, it's like when I started sculpting, everybody's like, oh, you know, you could just scan this. You could scan someone and get it 3D printed and do this. And it's like, I know, but I kind of like just like working with the wax or working with the clay. I want my fingers. And that's just something, maybe it's a primitive, that's an right. older, I don't want to use a primitive, but the word, an older impulse and that were and just pushing zeros and ones was not as satisfying as pushing mud. I don't think that'll ever die. I think yeah. that tactile in the materials art thing, whatever happens with digital, you will be able to make the most insane. I mean, I'll in in a hundred years be able to render Kim walking through this room. Well, we definitely we do it now. Well, yeah, totally. But yeah. in sort of real time. But it, you'll never get away from humans wanting yeah. to get a material. Yeah, I, it's yeah. fun. And I tried some around. VR stuff, VR sculpture, and it's like insanely cool. So I'm not saying like it's not unbelievably cool and it's not going to be a viable addition to the world of art because I think it all is. Because I think the art is never about the tools. It's about the artist. Mm-hmm. 
Meaning, like, even if I like pushing mud with a brush, if someone gave me a VR helmet, like if I was in the Google Arts, and I, like I was, and they said, here, create something, I would really get into it. And if they said, you, could, you have a month to do something, I would love doing it. But there's something for me that I do love the physical, and that's just a personal... That's just personal taste. That means it's better right. But I did talk to uh, a really good friend of mine, a guy named Bob Camp, who's one of the creators of Ren and Stimpy. Mm. And, uh, and I said, you know, I, I did, and I show, we were having lunch, and I brought out my iPad to show my, my digital thing. And then he did a digital thing. Because he, you know, he's comic books and animation, and he's done a lot of concept art and storyboarding. In, and I said, what do you think about it? And he said, the problem I have with digital art is, he says, you're never done. And I was like, yes, because you can always change. You can in a second, you can just change a filter, you can change a color, yeah. you can adjust every. At some point with oils, it's like, at some point those balloons. I'm I'm looking as I speak. I'm mm-hmm. looking at Marshall's painting, but at some point the balloons are kind of done. And if you kept working on them, you would kill it in the paint. Right. And, yeah. and the digital, you never kill because it never exists. Yeah. And also, oh, that's crazy. He's the one yeah. who told me that. I didn't come up with that, but I, as soon as he really said it, it was like a super truth to me. And there's also this sort of uh, throw-it-away mentality of uh, digital art. Like when we had the Tell Them Stories Origins show, we, we had two comic book artists who worked, one, worked purely digitally from beginning to end, mm-hmm. uh-huh. uh, Gus Storms. Right. And then we had the other guy... Um, Jean-Pierre. Jean-Pierre, yeah. He does this, like, beautiful old school with, like, ink and scratch-outs and, like, you know, this Dude. whole old school yeah. process, which looked amazing. And, like, their philosophies are completely different because, like, you, you talk to Gus, and he's just like, yeah, it's like tissue paper. You know, you just do it, and it just, that's it. It's done. Yeah. Right? right? Like, it's, it's not meant to be. It's meant to be just uh, and, consumed and, and kind right. of just thrown away which goes back to illustration that's illustration because it doesn't transcend and then the other artist Jean-Pierre is going and so even though he's also comic book and illustration his work oh Jean-Paul Lyon he transcends yeah Mm. even though they're both commercial that's a good yeah it was it was really interesting the two of them because they're both so sort of hyper talented but I I mean me, I don't know how anybody else felt, but you do pay a little more attention to Jean Paul's because it's just, I mean, you could see strokes, you could see thoughts in it so, so evidently. Cool to, like, hold it's fucking unbelievable, those were. That page with just all the ink and you could, like, touch it. Yeah. And it's, it's very tactile. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not, I'm, I know that's a taste thing, but I'm more for that. That's my taste. Yeah. And I think we pursue, so. Um, I do. I do love the mud. I do love the the brushes. I do love painting on aluminum or wood or canvas. Or it's so unbelievable. Dye bond, aren't you? Or? Yeah, dye bond. Recently at uh, at at Jerry's New York Central. Shout out to Heather. On a shout out to Heather Goldstein <laughs> at New York <laughs> at uh, Jerry's New York Central on Fourth Avenue and Eleventh uh, Street, uh, they are selling aluminum panels now. Ah. And so I have I am working on two aluminum panels that are like Dibon, but they're a different company that somebody is just like cutting to them down to size. Oh, they they're selling them pre We gotta out. talk uh, shop later. Okay. About dye bonds and all the cool surfaces. All right. Yeah. But they're cutting them down to the size. They're, they're cutting. They're not cutting, but they have pre-cut sizes that are pretty oh. good. 
Jerry's is an amazing store. Yeah. Jerry's is Jerry's is an amazing store. It really is. <laughs> As someone who worked for Utrecht in two thousand eight, maybe. Wow, Jerry's! It, I'm glad to see a better store take over that. Yeah, space. I, I'm telling all my students to go to Jerry's because I say it's a it's a it's a painter's store, and it, it's really it's really the place where you get embraced as an artist. Yeah, as yeah. a painter. Are they the ones Say hey to Sam New Central Paper Supply? Yes. Yeah, oh. they're amazing. Uh, they are. I was so happy to Is hear there, that. Is there anything else? Did you want to talk about comics? Did you um, want to... Well, I had wanted to talk about comics. I wanted to talk about Vanitas. And also but... about John's uh, books. Yeah, and about your oh, sketchbooks. So let's try to wrap department. it up. Um... But I wanted to talk about raising Ben and your small apartment, John. So which one are we... <laughs> <laughs> that's a lot to cover. That's that's too much for the short time we have. Because we're already over like the two hour mark right now. Oh, is dear. it over two hours? Yeah. But you're you're gonna edit it I down, think... right? Um, yeah, he edits. No, <laughs> I'm gonna leave everything. No, in. you'll edit, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can edit it down. All right. But you know, you can you know, you're always welcome back. I feel okay. like there's so much to talk about with you. I think it is interesting. I think you. And, like, kind of raising... Because, like, Ben is such a cool guy. And then just, like, sort of, like, raising and being an artist in one room is fascinating to me. Yeah, all right. So Ben is my my son, who's almost 27, who's a film editor, or mostly commercials these days, but he did get a short film that he edited into Tribeca. Uh, He did grow... Yeah, Tribeca Film Festival. Wow. Uh, And he is... uh, But I always see him as the... uh, Wait, is it Ben Wellington? Yeah. Okay. Ben Ben Wellington. So I always see him as a 2.0 version of me. (laughs) (laughs) He's like... He's taller. He's better looking. He's cooler. (laughs) He's playing ice hockey and scoring goals. He's like... Yeah, he's like... I'm like that... Like, you know... And I think that's as a parent. That's what you want. I mean, I guess... I mean, that's for me what I want. You want your children to to go beyond you, you know, to be better than you are. But it was... It was interesting because I did raise him in a one-room apartment, which is where I still paint. I'd love to have a painting studio, and I, I think I, I made decisions to, to try and price my work at a certain level that when I sold a work, I could live off it for a year. And I, couldn't affo- I could afford health insurance at the time, but I couldn't afford health insurance in a studio. And I was very lucky, I think, or Ben and I were both very lucky that not only was I his father and he was my son, but we really... Um, uh, liked each other, hmm. and I mean this at, at different ages. I mean when he was six, and when I was in my thirties, and and uh, we we just we got along. I, I was a very strict father in some ways. Uh, people thought I was a very lenient dad, and in fact, I was very strict when it came to academia. But I'd try and do it in a fun way, like when I'd walk him to school in the morning. I would we would be studying for spelling tests or when I pick him up I'd make sure we do all the homework. By the time we got home, almost all his homework was done. I would take him to a place for hot chocolate. I would so I was very strict in academia, but on the other hand I was taking him to like R rated like Jet Li karate movies and to jackass movies when he was like ten. Yeah, yeah. Or like in his second grade I think I was like, Okay, if you do your math homework I'll take you to see Matrix. Right. And right. and so he was exposed, to, like like he was playing Resident Evil, like in grammar school and Grand Theft Auto, like three or four in grammar school, which is like completely inappropriate. 
So some parts of my upbringing him was was inappropriate. But then again, he also was growing up with like nudes on the walls. So my thoughts were not about not exposing, and this might go back to Balthus, but exposing and contextualizing the exposure, which is why I'm not against having a wall text that contextualizes Balthus. I'm not like, look, any information, even if it's, you say, well, how can the information not be biased? Well, all information is biased, but sure, if if these two uh, women think that Balthus needs a text next to it, that's fine. I mean, the painting sure. still exists. And I did feel that with Ben. So when Ben played uh, Grand Theft Auto, you know, there are people saying, well, Grand Theft Auto is leads to crime. And I was like, you know, dude, I, I, I don't know. There seemed to be crime in New York way before <laughs> the, the people who were born that like made Grand Theft Auto. You ever see gangs in New York, dude? Um, before there were cars, there was crime in New York. And, and so I thought, you know, let him play a game and let him know it's a video game and know that this is an outlet for violence, but it's not the way you're supposed to behave. Let them see that there's paintings of nudes on walls, but that doesn't mean that, you know, you can go around and photograph anybody who's needing to say get nude. And let, so it was about exposure, but also really giving, uh, I hate to say that, but my own personal moral guidelines and boundaries. And, uh, and so it's like, it's kind of guiding, but not um, not doing as much editing. Sometimes I would I would let him self edit, like uh, like South Park. Oh uh, uh, no, not South Park. It was um, Team America by the creators of South Park came out. Yeah, yeah. And some of his friends had seen it, and they were like, "America, fuck yeah, we yeah, can't yeah. say the motherfucker," you know, like that. And I said, "Look, Ben, it's and it was like pretty like the sex scene." If you guys remember the puppets having sex, it's been a long time. Well, that that I'll never be able to unsee that. <laughs> <laughs> and and so there were things I was just like, oof. I wasn't really ready to, but I but I knew his friends had seen. I said, look, Ben, we have it. We have it on VHS. And uh, I said, when you, I said, look, there's a lot of stuff in this. When you're ready to see it, you let me know and you can watch it. And I put it on him, and he waited like a year and a half. And he's like, Dad, you know what? And, he was, and at the time, he was older. All of a sudden, he was like 14 or something. I was like, sure. Huh. And, and so that's how I raised him. We, 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 when I, I'll say where my apartment really means something is when I have a student who's like, oh, my God, I can't paint. I don't have a studio. I only have my living room. And I'll say, well, why don't you come over? <laughs> and then when they see that... You know, there was a loft where my son slept. I slept on a futon for 15 years below my son. And then in the corner, I was making paintings that aren't... They're nothing like Vincent Desiderio, Stephen Assale, but for a person who didn't have a big studio, they're not tiny. No, yeah. You know, like you're, you're, you know, like they weren't tiny, tiny right. paintings. I think one of the reasons you can do that in that studio is because you have those cathedral ceilings. I have high right? ceilings. I do. And so I always think that... Uh, that it's good to have people around. Uh, so one of the reasons I was able to do what I was able to do is because you, you don't raise, you raise a child, but the child also raises you. And I really lucked out mm-hmm. by having Ben and, uh, you know, because he was the type of human that wasn't like dad, why don't we live in a townhouse? Like my friend who has a private theater and who has like, a you know, like, can you eat a blue ribbon every day, sushi, you know, he, he had those friends, and he was very happy, and one of the things that was so cool was, like, you know, like, going to Kim's video on St. Mark's with him, and he would just oh, be I like, remember Kim's video. and he'd just be like, 
dad, I love our neighborhood. Oh, and it was so just like, great. and that was like so great. And then, you know, and then the rewards were like when he was like 15, he was able to call Angel Share, the secret Japanese bar, and he'd call up Tetsuo or Shige and he'd be like, hey, I'm coming with a girl. <laughs> There's no reservations there. And they would hold a spot at the bar for him and somebody. Oh my God. And so he was, he was, he was he was kind of macking at, you know, in 10th grade. So that was the, that was the plus side for So it comes full circle. You have, you grew up, you're a real New Yorker. You grew up in New York, but not, you know, from your very early childhood. And then your son is... But I think... Finishing that story through... He is. I was, I was much more on him than my mom was on me. Mm. I, I had a... I, I was much. She was a um, an overwhelmed working m- mom trying to do great things in city planning as a single mom in a in a sexist, male dominated world. Mm. I was a stay at home dad painting that could go and pick him up at school, and I when he finally would go to school off and on by himself in middle school he had a cell phone I'd say call so I was very on him all the time. In a way that when I was growing up in the village, well, I was I mean, just, I was like, we were all like wild child. Well, you didn't have a cell phone back then. No, and we were just, we were <laughs> from second grade, from, you know, six, seven years old, we were just roaming the streets. But I think like in your, in your paintings and in this conversation, it seems like you have a real love for people and almost how I think of that is a respect for them, like almost a humanist idea, like you respect a you expect a lot from people looking at your paintings to get past whatever the the snag is and see what you're really saying and even Ben being um very vigilant in some areas and lax in other areas that shows a respect for a fellow human in a way oh wow and it's almost beautiful, and it's like, how could someone like Ben not turn out? I've hung out with Ben. Like, he's a great guy. How could he not turn out great? Almost like, how can your paintings not turn out great? Because they expect a lot. You, you're you asking a lot with respect from the people you're around, you know? First of all, that's so sweet. I'm just going to take try and take it in. <laughs> but it will it will bring me to something my mom said about raising me. She said... I raised the person I wanted to spend time with. Wow. And, and my mom and I, we spend time, we go, we talk. I often, when I'm teaching, I quote my mom in classes and, uh, and I, you know, and I did, and I did take that. I, I raised the, the little kid I wanted to hang out with. Yeah. And, and also, and I, and I paint the paintings I want to live with. I mean, really, if I like won lotto, you know, and I it was worth like you know a hundred million dollars. I would I would go like Gustave Moreau. I would have you know his dad just built him like this super giant house, and and then he just stopped showing and he just lived with his art. And that's a museum now. And I'm not I don't know if I'd go that route or not. But I don't think you could stop painting. He didn't stop painting, did he? Oh, I think he kept no, going, okay. but he just stopped showing and selling. Okay. But I don't know if I would go that route. But I do. But when I go I to Gustave Moreau's museum in in the ninth arrondissement. Uh, I do get it. You know, I do get like I this get guy who is creating for himself and he's just like, I don't want to be judged and be told, you know, your work is crap and you suck and this because I just want to do this and live with it. And 
And I do get that because I think that there's a certain type of artist. And we didn't really go into the different types of artists and why I'm so careful to say for me is because I don't think, like, I think that the type of work I'm doing and you're doing and like we're all doing, it's the right work for us to be doing. That's right. Yeah, that's right. So I'm going to say something that's opening up another can of worms. And it's a much, it's a whole other subject. And I am going to say, not from the dealers, the curators, the collectors, the uh, museum directors, the art writers' point of view. I'm only going to say, like, from someone like Damien Hurst's point of view. If he can wake up in the morning and he's happy with his life where he can paint, you know, somebody, you know, pay somebody like, you know, 100 people like 12 quid an hour to knock out dot paintings mm. and sell them for a million a piece, I have no judgment on Damien Hurst. As a matter of fact, I only have a bit of like, man, if I could paint a dot painting and sell it for a million dollars, I would leave you guys right now, get back down to my studio, and be like, Evelyn, fill that one in with light pink. <laughs> We're renovating the kitchen. <laughs> you know, like, like, I would just be like, I get him. What That's I don't... That is not in me, but but whatever way that someone decides to become an artist, whether it's highly monetized and highly commercial, like you know, like um, uh, Thomas Kincaid, like you know, who was at one time he was the richest artist in America. Like it's hard for me to judge him. You know, he's doing what woke he, now. Who I not in Thomas Kincaid's part, but so like in Damien Hurst's part, I don't judge Damien Hurst for his manufacturism and for that. I I judge the art world for embracing it, and monetizing it, and using it as like uh, poker chips that are worth such amount of money to trade back and forth in order to hide their funds. I I blame the system, not the artist. I, I think, can see that. I, I think whatever that. you one does, you know, from like if you know someone like like it's like how do you make your living? Well, I paint people's dogs. Yeah. I'm not going to go. Well, you suck. I'd be like, oh, that's, do you, I, my question is, do you enjoy it? Unfortunately, we've often as heard. A, as a wise man once said, don't hate the player. Hate the, the game. game. <laughs> that, that is, but that's it. <laughs> so I always find artists to be the players, and some artists play certain games at certain times better than others. And yeah. uh, but I, I do. But I, I think I. I mean, I agree. I agree with the game. And I. I this is. I've <laughs> don't have to this back. I feel like we gotta have the music coming. <laughs> <in. laughs> because it's corrupt, right? Like it's like the art world's corrupt. But I think. I don't know. I feel like there's a higher calling we have. Like we're all, almost like, we were given this neuroses to be artist as a gift. And if, if you don't use, if you squander it like Damien Hurst on dots, I get it that it's the game and I agree a hundred percent, but he, he's still doing it. I think even if you got to like live in poverty and whatever, you got to get yourself out there. Cause you were given this gift of like, like the whole world works off leaders and followers, right? Like someone wants to be a leader and there's people who want to follow that leader and you go through things and the leaders, whoever, Bill Gates and the followers are whoever. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It, it's a fucked up system where Bill Gates is as much of a stooge as the followers. And then there's people like artists with a certain set of neuroses who pull themselves out of that, who are like me. Like, 
10 years old. I was like, I don't want anyone to follow me. I don't want to follow that guy. This means nothing to me. Like yeah. this whole structure, I don't get any dopamine jolts when anyone says, this guy's great. Let's follow him. And I certainly don't get any dopamine jolts from saying like, that guy was great. I'm going to follow him. Right. Well, so I think that you pull yourself out and you just observe People, you observe humanity because it doesn't mean as much to you for some reason in in that way. So as you observe it, you gain insight. And if you're just using that insight to paint dots, there's something wrong, right? Or, or but or or to put it like, because I you know I, Damien Hirst gets picked on fairly because because he's making so much damn money. But I mean, but you could say that also about late Canalettos. Like when you look at early Canalettos is the search, there's, you know, you look at the way he's painting water and the water's painted like of a moment and the sky is painted of a moment and light. And then you look at later Canalettos, the water has the, all the same lines, the figures are the same little blocks of dots and his and it, and it's that that idea of manufacturism. And I think that that works and that's a fine I don't think it's a bad path because I think that manufacturism that we we didn't talk we didn't use this word I was I was hesitant to to throw it out manufacturism no not that word oh. but that about my work only going to a small part the people that might get it is elitist right okay I didn't yeah. use that word because it's so many like fetish there are all these words that have negative connotations but I do think that like the way you're talking about being an artist and something that was in your notes that we didn't talk about which is like being a poet mm-hmm. like it's okay to write romance novels or write you know sci-fi novels or adventure novels who's the there's a writer who's always on doing commercials for his work and he has all these writers that Oh, like Dean Coons or something? No, like someone even more famous. And he, he, Robert Jordan? No, it's someone else. Names? He's not sci-fi. He writes everything. Tom Clancy? No, but they're all good. Okay. But there's even one more. But, I mean, it's okay to do that. But sometimes it's okay also to be a poet. You know, right, sometimes right, it's okay right, to, right. to sort of be like, you know what? I am going to be elitist. I'm not going to create the thing that's going to be liked by the most amount of people. Like Thomas Kincaid, you know, would write Bible verses on the bottom of his... You know, he, what was he, Master of Light or something? I forgot the Painter what, of Light. The Painter of Light. And, you know, he'd do these cottages at the magic hour. And, in fact, I, I once went and, and actually started to go deep into Thomas Kincaid. And the fact is the guy is talented. I saw his <laughs> yeah, work when he went good. to Paris. And I think he was painting from a place in his religious heart, even though he was arrested for drunk driving and died in his early 50s. But Actually, a side note, if... If anybody wants fascinating stories on Thomas Kincaid, another podcast, listen to the dollop on Thomas Kincaid. I want. I listen to it. It's brilliant. You listen to it? It's brilliant. Yeah, brilliant. That love episode. It. And before is that, I, and even before that, I, first of all, I love the dollop. But even before that, I was like into Thomas Kincaid and reading about his life. But I mean, the thing is that um, that it's okay to create something for the largest common denominator, you know, like McDonald's. And it's also okay to be elitist and maybe have a restaurant where you're, you're making food for people that only for people who are going to understand that the, that when you serve mayonnaise, that mayonnaise was made an hour ago and the butter is really fresh and the bread just came out of the oven. It's okay to have that too. And maybe it, maybe that restaurant that's like, you know, doing everything like artisanal and very, slowly isn't going to have billions and billions sold. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe every 
every evening they can seat 15 people, but it's okay for them to exist. Are they elitist because they only can serve seatings of 15 or 25 people as opposed to billions? I guess they are, but it's okay. And I think like what you're talking about, I think all four of us, we're probably more elitist in the sense that our audience isn't the greatest common denominator of people who are going to like our work. Our, our audience is us, and then hopefully some people who like art like us, and that's okay mm-hmm. too. So I, I, the reason why I hesitate for elite, using words like fetishism or elitism, but the, also the reason I want to embrace them, is because in fact that they aren't all negative words. And there's multiple con- uh, definitions for them. Right. There, there, there should be expansive vocabulary rather than reductive in the meaning. Yeah, no, I think that's a really sort of enlightened take. I, I don't know if I'm there yet. I'm always, I'm always wanting art to push people forward. I, I mean, like, I get it, like, McDonald's serves hamburgers and, like, it's Superhero cheap. movies. See, I hate that shit. I do. I really, it's like, I don't know. It's like, I feel like, I don't know, like a movie like Brokeback Mountain or something. I saw that in real time change the rednecks like I was born around their ideas on, on gay, gay people. You know what I'm saying? So that's a thing that was a mainstream movie that would be in between McDonald's and the in the sort of sustainable restaurant you're yeah. talking about. Ang Lee. Ang Lee. Cracked in, and all the rednecks I was around were like, oh, those dudes look pretty cool. You know, that was the... And so then it's like, all right, gay people are cool. And I think uh-huh. that means more than any legislation policy or anything. It's just something that hits some dude going to see something unbeknownst to them. Right. And when that's a dot painting, I get really angry about it. I'm like, mm-hmm. Damien Hurst, you have unlimited resources, and you could make another Brokeback Mountain, and you're just doing. Well, he did. He did dots. just. And he just did do that giant show that was shown. I mean, that was shown at the Venice Biennial. Plus with a, a statue, film. yeah. That's well, cool. the, like this idea of this. Fa- it's sort of like Disney World. It's like this undiscovered treasures but it's like mickey mouse but he had his sculptors like do uh, the barnacles and stuff on it and it's like you know it's like going into like the disney uh ride that was a two is it two thousand eight thousand leagues under the sea what's the jules yeah, burn book yeah yeah yeah. Oh, yeah. Twenty thousand. Yeah. Twenty thousand. twenty thousand twenty thousand leagues 20 it was, leagues. It was 20, no, 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 it was 20,000. But when you do the Disney one, you, when you do the Disney ride, it had like the barnacles and all the stuff. And it, uh-huh. and so his show was a little bit like that. Anyway, this might not fit the podcast, but the idea of Damien Hirst dot paintings, so I've used the term manufacturism. Mm-hmm. So everything goes to different degrees. Right now, the reason why we're all struggling so much is... We're all in the art grind. We are in the reason why we're in the art grind, and it wasn't. And I'd say how things have changed that, like, for me in the 90s and the Small early 2000s, I was selling work at a much higher price. And because art, wait, because, when was this? When did you say? Uh, 90s, uh, and, and early 2000s. Ah, uh-huh. yeah, yeah. Uh, for there's a multiple, like all things, multiple reasons, but one reason was that people, collectors who really loved good art didn't think much if they're rich enough could spend 14 or 20,000 on a painting 
and they didn't think about the commodity. They, what they felt is, wow, that took a long time to make, and it looks valuable, and I'll spend it. Mm-hmm. And I'd say what's happened now is that I'm sure those collectors are still out there, but they're a little bit smaller. And what's great about artists like Takashi Murakami and Jeff Koons and Damien Hurst and Tom Sachs and you know the countless artists that all have their work made for them is that when you have your work manufactured as opposed to you doing it, there's a consistency. So I'm talking about, so this whole podcast has been about, I like to surprise myself. If I find myself knowing what my work is going to end up like, I have to change it. I have to be a poet. I have to find what's weird about me. Everything I'm saying is actually contradictory to anything I would tell somebody who said, I want to make a lot of money right now through my art. Mm -hmm. Everything I said this entire podcast is... Absolutely, do not do not listen to what I said for the last <laughs> number of hours. Spoiler alert: Don't listen. Yeah, don't now listen that to that. Turn it off. So if so if so, reason why the dot painting the dot painting is such a good example because it's such a consistency and and also because he did the show which was like in every Gagosian gallery like it was twelve galleries and the the sun never set. This was like in two thousand. 13 or 12 yeah, yeah. when he had when the dots were in every gallery and it's supposedly like awesome. that like there was always a gallery opening <laughs> of Gugosians that was showing the dot paintings that's why it's such a great example because it, it just so it so took it to the extreme and the thing is that at some point the people that were buying art were there were always investors always speculators in the art market I mean you can read stuff like you know 1900 of people speculating on art so and 18 1800s there's always been that so it's not like oh at one time in 1860 it was pure and now it's corrupt it's never like that there's always a little bit of corruption there's always a little bit of purity and it just becomes like the balance of how much so what's happened now which started happening in in the 80s early 80s is that the people that were buying art stopped becoming less and less connoisseurs and more and more people that were hedge fund, more and more people that were money people that understood about the trading of commodities, the trading of the trading of a stock. So you have an app, like let's say, you know, Kim has 100 shares of Apple stock and I have 20 shares of Apple stock. What is the difference? It's just that she has 100 shares and I have 20 shares. It's still Apple stock. Mm-hmm. If you have five Damien Hurst dot paintings and I have one Damien Hurst dot painting and they're the same size, we have the same monetary worth. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If yeah. I have a smaller, if I have a small Damien Hurst dot painting, I have a smaller monetary worth than a larger Damien Hurst dot painting. Right. And these are tradable commodities, quickly tradable commodities. So if you want to go and buy, let's, so for example, let's say right now you're like, John, I just won Lotto. Right. I have five hundred million dollars. I want to go buy an Auto Dix. How come you get to win the lotto and I only get a hundred shares of Apple? Look, I won it in this scenario. <laughs> Kim, Kim, you you just won Lotto. But you're you're talking as opposed <laughs> and you to wanna, and you want to buy an Auto Dix. I know which one I'd buy. All right, most Auto Dix are not on the market for sale, and the right. only time an Auto Dix is going to be on the market for sale is if a divorce, a death. Or right. bankrupt or debt bankruptcy, and there's and there's a hierarchy of better and lesser auto dicks. Right, but the thing is that most of the time, people that like, let's say I'm a multimillionaire and I own an auto, I know a multimillionaire who owns an auto dicks. Oh, you do? 
My and name is uh, Jay Fudd, and I own yeah. a mansion in a yacht. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> and he, it's a drawing, not a, but it's still really nice. And, uh, and he doesn't sell it because he could sell it. Um, but if he sells it, what's he going to get? He's going to get some money. He already has money, right? Well, he's mm-hmm. going to have to pay taxes on the money. But the right. enjoyment of the auto dicks is, is more for him than, all right, great. I got another 220000 now I'll, I'll pay half in taxes and I'll have a hundred or pay 40, whatever. The thing about a Damien Hurst is it's not devotional in its making. It's not devotional. And, and it's easily tradable. So you can buy a Damien Hurst for, let's say, uh, you, you overpaid for the dot painting. You paid one point, you paid one point like one million one hundred thousand for it. You were a little bit high in the market. You put in your Freeport storage. Damien Hurst, the articles come out. The market's tanked. The you know he's over, and it's gone down to nine hundred thousand. You just lost two hundred thousand dollars on your Damien Hurst, but it's still worth nine hundred thousand, and you've kept it in a Freeport tax free. And at some point, if Gagosian does his job right, and they do the shill, you know, bidding, and they bid up his work again in auction, it can go back up, or you can sell it at the two hundred thousand dollar loss, and know that you you stored. Basically, rounding it down from one hundred and one million one hundred thousand to nine hundred thousand, you basically stored a million dollars safely for a while, which is like all these giant apartments that are being built, like right. these uh, these safe deposit boxes in the sky that are being built in New York City. Mm-hmm. The one on Fifty Seventh Street, right there, or right uh, the or the Harry Macklow right here that's going, you know, that long. Yeah. So it's it's a way of storing your art like an Apple stock, and at some point, you know, you have your stocks, you have your apartment buildings. And the reason why, like, let's say I'm selling my paintings for 20000 a painting, which would be awesome, like, if it was consistently 40000 whatever, how many $40,000 paintings would that person have to store to get a million-dollar painting, mm-hmm. right? That's a lot of stored space. With a Damien Hirst dot painting, you got a million-dollars-ish, give or take. Maybe it'll go down a little. You know, maybe Damien Hirst is over. Dot painting's now 800000 800, $70,000. I, re- I read that article and I was like, wait, you're telling me his market crash and his dot paintings are $870,000? Are you fucking kidding me? I was like, that's a crash? Tell me his work is like $870. Then I'll... But, but that's what it is. That These are consistent products. So they look consistent. They sell relatively yeah. consistent. Just like your Apple stocks go up and down. Right. Exactly. And if... His work is divergent in style. If Murakami's work is really divergent, it, it ruins the commodity aspect. So the idea of my whole way of making art is completely... It's counter... Antithetical. Counter and antithetical to the current <laughs> art world. But I'm an artist, or you know, the, what you had in your notes, a poet, and so are you guys, and that's what and we do. What we do because this is what we have to do. But I'm not saying what we do is practical or it's a smart thing to do in terms of making money. And right, and the manufacturism, as much as we might say this is really f- fucked up and it's really this, and it is. Um, but on the other hand, it, it makes a lot of sense. And it makes a lot of sense because of consistency and because if you don't think of the art as being devotional, like, oh, my God, I own – like, I have the Gregory Gillespie on my wall. Right. And yeah. I'd like to think I can make enough money all my life that I can die and leave it to Ben. Uh-huh. 
and then he can sell it and make a lot of money because that painting gives me so much pleasure that I would be very sad to sell it. But if I had a Damien Hirst, let's say I had three Damien Hirsts, you think I'd care? But if you had you had an Otto Dix or a Balthus or you know you know a great Mary Cassatt or a gorgeous Basquiat they did in '82, you it hurt to sell. It would like be, and then you and you know when you make money, you spend the money. And sometimes you don't even know what you spent the money on. You know, it's like all of a sudden you need to, you know, to go to the dentist and you did this and money gets spent. <laughs> yeah. But these types of things, these gorgeous objects that, you, you know, we go to when we look at a Bellini or something, these things really touch. They t- I'm not saying this is where it gets elitist. It doesn't touch everybody. But it certainly touches the four of us in this room. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, think, yeah, um, yeah. Do you think, Damien, like, what, what do you think his goal was in the beginning? Because, you know, some people... Just to make money. To make well, th- that's the thing, right? So, some people, you know, just spend all their energy, time and energy just to make money for the sake of making money. Yeah. I now, think... with some somebody like Damien Hurst, like, do you think? Well, he, he's got all this money now. Like, yeah. I think he was happy. A... Like, is it, like, do oh, he that... have a, a higher purpose than just? I I don't know. Like with Jeff Koons. But I do. I will say one thing about a lot of these artists. Also, is that a lot of them also have like a little bit of um, frat boy humor mm. to their works too. So there's a little bit like getting money, but like f you all, because like I they're kind of rebels. Yeah. They're kind of rebels in their personal life, even right. if they are like like so getting that, over. So that could be the higher purpose for him. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's a Otherwise, little bit like giving the finger, like uh, yeah. uh, Maurizio Catalan, you know who. He did like the the Greek. I'm, I'm giving the finger right now to everybody, but he does the Greek sculpture of the hand, and all the fingers are bro- broken off. Mm. But the middle finger, or you have uh, Ai Weiwei, who's actually photographing himself giving the finger in front of like you know the Forbidden City, or you is it is it Tom? Sa- who's the one who did the Christmas tree? In Place de la Concorde, but it was actually a green butt plug. Oh, <laughs> who was oh that? Yes, that was I, the, was I, Tom Sachs. Sadly, or? I can see it in my head. But yeah, I can't but I mean, they're all kind of like frat humor. Is. So in a way, they're really going commercial because the world is buying into their conceptual work, and it has like sort of like the sophomore. It definitely has like my sense of humor in eighth grade. Yeah. Yeah, like I'm, I'm completely down with everything no, they I did. Feel when like but since of humor in eighth grade might have been a little bit mm-hmm. better than that. But well, I, it, you know, I, I could, I could, I could go there. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I think like there's two tracks here in this conversation. Here, you have such a your artwork a is elevated. You have an elevated way of talking about like one of the words we've been saying like. Um, a new definition for fetish and devotion and all these things that are like so rich. And then you still have place in your heart for uh, aggressive sort of capitalism and you don't demean it. I think it's like impressive your whole, your whole view on that. Well, I can, there's a part of me that does demean it, but I never, Uh I try not to blame the artist as much as the, uh, you know, don't hate the the system. The the system is the one that supports it. As we were talking about during the break about how important writers are and, and manifestos, you know, were good because it helped writers give, there's some meat to write about. And, and the thing is that when you have, um, when you have a someone who has their PhD in art history, and they're waxing poetically at the Met about Jeff Koons, 
And there, and someone says, "But does Jeff Jeff Koons doesn't make his own paintings?" And he said, "Yes, no, of course, it, but he uses the studio system exactly the way Rubens did." Right, Rubens is says, always one they'll say. That's the villain. <laughs> not, not. I mean, I'm not saying Jeff Koons is not a villain for firing all his painting. I'm not talking about for individual, but his success. He's not villainous for his success. He's making the images and. Hiring the people to make his images. And what about uh, the, vi- the writers that are supporting him? But the writers and the directors, the right. ones who, every time I read something that says that Jeff Koons or Damien Hirst or Takashi Murakami are doing the Rubens model, I'm, I, first of all, a lot of these people, some of them who I've met over the years, know better. Like, they actually did get PhDs and write their dissertations and have books published by Yale University Press or Columbia, and they they actually know better. And it's just disingenuous. And it's a lie. Because Rubens Studio, Rubens did have assistants, but the greatest artist in Rubens Studio was Rubens. And the teacher in Rubens Studio was Rubens. And when Rubens didn't want to paint a still life, if he didn't want to paint the grass in there, you know, in the side, he would say, go paint the grass. And in fact, when you look at a Rubens... You look at this amazing areas of painting, and then you see some clouds are slightly hacked in, and some uh-huh. architecture that's hacked in, and a still life that's hacked in. And the greatest moments in Rubens is Rubens, and the greatest artist in Rubens' studio was Rubens. And if you became as great as Rubens, then you became Van Dyke. Right. And then you went off and you had your own studio. Mm-hmm. So the it, greatest hope of the teacher is that the student surpasses him, right? No. No? Uh, not, not me either. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's happened to me way too many times. Uh, it's maybe never... you're too altruistic. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's happened to me a number of times. I'm like, oh, like you've talked a ton in Dina Brodsky. Well, that's what I would hope. <laughs> no, you do, you do. But you're like a little bit like, really ton? Really got to be painting better than me right now? Really, really? Why, why don't we knock it down a notch there, son? All right, I take it back. Since I only... Obviously. Only since I have one of my students in the room, and I'm like, okay, well, we don't have to paint that well, Ton. What are you trying to show off? <laughs> trying to? Oh, real good, Ton. We're all yeah, real we're proud excited. Of you. Yeah, you, did, you did such a great job there. Wow, everybody likes your painting more than mine. Aren't you proud of yourself great now? Job. <laughs> all right, all right, I take it back. I was like, back. Liz. All right, so Liz, I didn't know who she was, and she said, "Oh yeah, that show was so great. A tons was my favorite work," and I was like. Um, Liz? I was in the show? Liz, I had a painting in the show. <laughs> no, I, I know, it's uh, true, you do hilarious. want, you do want, I mean, what you want to do is, as a teacher, share your knowledge. But as, as for being generous, I don't mean to be so, I, I have my hate yeah, for, but no, but I do have, I, I mean, I do have my hate for the manufacturous artists, yeah. but less for them than for the system of like the shilling at the auction houses that you know if a Damien Hurst is about to go like a dot painting was selling it at like one million and it's about to go to seven hundred thousand and eighty that there'll be a whole group of people that will bid it back up to keep the price. But here's my and, question: and we don't have that support system. Like a little bit, just for you, and, and this is a little off topic, almost <laughs> like uh, sa- like. You are someone who, you're self-deprecating when you talk, which is charming, but in reality, you're, you're like a fucking badass painter, like as good as you'd ever want to be at something, and you make such compelling images, and like, look, we just mentioned, you're, you're spawning other people like Ton who are 
are super great at what they're doing and your influence is evident throughout these you know generations and stuff and and when someone like a Hearst just kind of like get, gets that brass ring that you didn't quite get when you're <laughs> much more capable yeah. is that there there sour grapes there at all like, oh yeah I mean but I think that? there's always yeah I, I call it, so what I call it I like sour grapes what I call it when I get into those moods I call it bratting out bratting out yeah <laughs> that's okay. my bratting out <laughs> so yeah I absolutely have my bratting out moments like dun, 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 why don't I get them but it's not even about Damien Hurst it's more like stuff more like on, an, on a level that I could attain like why didn't I get a job at the Art Students League or why okay. didn't I get a you know it's like more like it's never at a Damien Hurst level uh, like yeah, it's yeah. never like why am I not having retrospectives at the Whitney? It's like it's not at that level. It's more at like, but I do of course have bratting out, and you always, and you know, there's always these measurements. Every time you you age five years or a decade, you always think, oh, I thought I would be at this moment then, and and I think that that's just you know whether whether they call it the in meditation, the, not the crazy monkey, they call it the. Monkey mind. Monkey mind. You know, yeah. I mean, I, I think we have... I don't know anything So it's this. just like, it's that chattering brain in you that it's like, why aren't you getting this? Why aren't you... It's all that resentment and all that. Mm. And of course you have that. It's not I mean, voices our, that you can't turn off that are always... Yeah. And I, of, course up, you, yeah. of course one has that. And then you have it, you brat out about it, and then you get back and you start painting again. You know, you start creating again because that's, that's what, what you do. I, that's what I admire about you is like... I don't. I can't think of us except for you sitting here and talking to us right now. I can't think, or maybe at an exhibition. But every time I am, have come over to visit you at your studio, like you'll be in a conversation. You can't help yourself. You have to go over there and work on that painting. Like you're so. It's not just the. Oh, I've it, seen it, that too. It's beyond actually, devotion yeah. into uh, in this. In, uh, really. Uh, yeah, I didn't well, know or maybe not be up, but yeah, no, it, I didn't it know. It truly is devotion. Like, I, no, I really always see what you like. There's always part of you that's like, even if you're not painting, I can see you like you're already painting in your head. That's on, like, that is that, painting. And that is something that I so admire about you. Is like, it that true devotion to you to your yeah. work all the time. Yeah, I do. I to sort of wrap this up. I I think. Um, I mean, I do think that what we all have in common, you know, that we didn't go the manufacturerism route, that we didn't outsource our work, that we didn't decide to go conceptual, that we didn't decide to go with the flavor of the moment, yeah. mm-hmm. that we decide to go our own way, whether the pendulum swings back to us or never does, but this is, the, this is what we've done. Um, I do think that what we, we have in common and the people you're bringing to this, these podcasts are going to have in common is, that in fact, that they are devotional and that they... They're, it's not that they're never thinking practically. Like Dina, obviously, with her Instagram, is thinking incredibly practically on some levels. Right. Um, so it's all degrees of practicality. But in the end, we are we are trying to do what we love. Yeah. And then we are trying to convince... We don't need everybody to love us, but we need to have a few people believe in us and uh, and appreciate us. And And even if that doesn't happen, then at least when we wake up in the morning, we look at what's on our easel... It can give us a moment of pleasure, even as we're trying to solve the next problem of the painting. Wow, definitely. That's great, John. Thank you so much for coming. What a great conversation! My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. I'm here. Tell us all the things that we missed. Yeah, next time. Next time, the iBook, the the eBooks. Yes. Yes. I want to do an eBook because I want to sell. They're very expensive. I'm going to put those on the show. Yeah. 
We had a great time talking to John Wellington. You can find out more about John on his website, johnwellington.com, or on his Instagram account, Duke Wells. That's D-U-K-E-W-E-L-L-Z. You can find us on our website, artgrindpodcast.com, and on our Instagram account, artgrindpodcast. Rate and review us on iTunes and help us get the word out. Your voice matters. Thanks for listening to our Grind Podcast. Stay on the grind while we feed your mind. Mm-hmm.